You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello and welcome to the 42Cast, your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. As always, I am your host Nathan, and this is another episode where we're going to the movies and we're going to talk about Black Panther. But before that, let's meet our guests for the week. And first up is someone that we haven't had on the show in a while. She is the expert on all things MCU. She (laughs) is a geeky scholar, and that is Jen Hartshorn. How are you doing, Jen? I am doing excellent, sir. So what's been going on for you since the last time you were on? I Gosh, how long has it been? Um, I am in my second year of my doctoral program, and that's going along great. I did uh, just got back from a conference where I did an academic paper on Better Call Saul, mm. so that was exciting. And I've got a, a bunch of other papers that are uh, in the works, and it's just keeping busy. Well, that's good. I guess it's better than the alternative. This is true. (laughs) All right. Well, it's great having you back on, Jen. Thank you. And next up is the man that you absolutely love to hate. He's on the show all the time. (laughs) That is Ryan Guthrie. How are you doing, Ryan? I am doing fantastic. Just got back from vacation this morning, so um, I've got two, two needy cats hanging all around me. So if you hear the occasional meow. That would be them objecting to me, not giving them my full attention at the moment. Oh, okay. So they're setting you straight, huh? Well, I mean, they're they're, they're pretending like they don't give a crap, but they do. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, where did you go on your vacation? Oh, we just went to visit friends and family back in Arizona. We took Amtrak out, so that was an experience. But uh, then we flew back because, yeah. (laughs) Taking your life into your hands? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So how was that experience? Because I've never ridden a train before. Uh, you know, I would do it again if it was different scenery. I, I don't. I wouldn't do the Sunset Limited, the because you're just you're going through a desert the entire time. You, oh yeah, look, look, there's more dirt. Yeah, you know. But, uh, I would do like California or Colorado or some some other place. But mm-hmm. I actually I was talking to someone on the train who is an author, and he tells me that what he does is he just hops on the train and rides it for you know a few days or whatever, like whenever he's got writer, writer's block or to get started or whatever, because he can't go anywhere. He's a prisoner there. It's his version of, I guess, checking into a hotel room or mm. something like that. Okay. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Oh, for this podcast, during my, when I'm on vacation in a different state, when my family is present, mm. I still made time to see Black Panther a second time for oh, you. Oh, dedication. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll still be wrong, though. <laughs> no matter how many times you watch it, <laughs> you'll come to the wrong conclusion. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm just saying, I'm willing to wager that you might want to begin this podcast with a a warning that it might get political. (laughs) Well, actually, I'm glad you reminded me of that, because I'm going to do the thing that I always forget to do, which is to say, 
this is a spoiler warning for the podcast. Ah. <laughs> if you haven't seen Black Panther yet, just be warned that we will be talking about it in detail. So, you know, if, if that bothers you, then just pause it, go watch the movie and come back. If not, and you just wanted to know our opinions, then keep listening. But it's good to have you back on, Ryan. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. And next up is someone that I've known for many years. She is a cosplayer and a mom, and that is my buddy Angie. How are you doing, Angie? I'm doing great. I'm getting uh, hyped for my first trip to Disneyland in like 15 years. Mm. <laughs> Bring my child, and and uh, he's too young to appreciate any of it, but <laughs> I'll take a lot of pictures. <laughs> Yeah, I've, well, I can't say for sure I've never been because we did live in California when I was, uh, for my first year of my life, but I don't think I've ever been to Disneyland. I've been to Disney World several times, but I have no idea what's different. Have you been to Disney World? Yeah, I uh, I lived in I lived in San Diego when I was a kid, so we went to Disneyland a lot, but um, I went to high school on the East Coast, so every choir trip goes to Orlando. <laughs> <laughs> So I have been a couple of times. Um, I haven't, yeah, I haven't been back to Anaheim, like I said, for over a decade. Mm. So there's lots of stuff there that was not there before. Sure. Yeah, you know, pertinent to this podcast, Disney is allowed to put Marvel-themed stuff in Disneyland because it's west of the Mississippi. But because of the pre-existing deal that Marvel had with Universal before Disney bought them, Universal gets all the Marvel stuff, except for Guardians of the Galaxy, because they were nothing, like a nothing title, when Disney made the deal with Universal, which is why they're putting in the Guardians of the Galaxy ride at Disney World, because apparently that doesn't fall under the Universal deal. But I, I thought that sucked, because I went to Disney World a couple years ago, and there was nothing Marvel there, and there was so much Star Wars and Indiana Jones and everything else, but, you know, it was disappointing not to have any Marvel. Oh, that's interesting. We're also spending a day at Universal out there, which I, the last time I went to Universal Studios, the tram ride was the only ride. So um, <laughs> I hear it's changed a lot since then. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> I think they might have the some Tron stuff out there, too, which to me would be interesting. But like I say, I, I, have, I have not been to Disneyland at all. So I, I would be curious to do that one of these days. I'll return and report. Okay, thank you. <laughs> but yeah, definitely enjoy. Yeah, I'm excited. All right, awesome. And it's good to have you back on, Angie. It's good to be here. Thanks. You're welcome. And finally, is someone new to the podcast? He is a guy that I've met through the Earth Station One network. I see him posting the most amazing Black Panther like stuff uh, on his wall, which is why I wanted him on this podcast, including a Black Panther Thundercats mashup series. <laughs> that was fascinating <laughs> to me. Um, so that is uh, Lucas Garrett. How are you doing, Lucas? I'm doing great, Nathan. How are you this evening? I am doing great as well. Good, 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 good. I'm glad you enjoyed that. Yeah, um, that was done by a good friend of mine. He just said, you know what? If nobody else is going to even think about doing it, I might as well do it myself. So uh, he's got a, a comic himself, uh, which is called Tuskegee Airs, which you can find pretty much online. And he's one of the best artists I've ever seen, but he's definitely a good plot artist. And a good, you know, plot designer. So I saw all that and I said, yeah, I got to, I have to share this. Yeah, it was beautiful artwork. Yeah, it was an eight-part story where the Thundercats were imprisoned by Mumra and the, uh, I guess, what I would call the Thundercat um, Jedi Ghost. Mm -hmm. He, you know, found T'Challa, you know, in his realm. And so T'Challa wound up coming over there with his gear and, um, 
well, I can't spoil the rest of it, but you can definitely uh, find it online. You can definitely find it on his Instagram. And when I get a chance to, um, I'll send it, you know, to you guys. But yeah, he's uh, he's one of the best. So it goes to show that as long as you're not willing to make any money off of it, there's nothing that you really can't share. That's true. You know? <laughs> and have you seen yeah. the joke going around Facebook about how Storm and T'Challa's kids should be Thundercats? Yeah, I actually posted that <laughs> on my wall. I said, that's, you know, and I brought in, <laughs> it's funny, I, I'm becoming a lot like my dad because he would come up with quips like that, you know, what we call dad jokes. Right. And I shared with my little brother and he just, you know, gave me like a facepalm gif, you know, on the messaging. He said, I can't believe you. Because we grew up watching Thundercats. We actually saw the first episode back when we were very, very young. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's just, you know, it's a play on words. Mm-hmm. And this is a generation where there's a lot of play on words. But, yeah, um, as far as where myself, I am a United States Marine veteran, 2000, 2008. 20 years of experience with security, mostly unarmed. Also, I was for a year, a good year was a building engineer, but my passions are crossovers. I love mm. stuff like, you know, what my friend showed with uh, the Black Panther, Thundercat crossovers. And really that love comes from two things. It comes from Ron Fortier and Jeff Butler's now comics, Green Hornet comic that they ran back in the late 80s, early 90s, which made the Lone Ranger and the Green Hornet part of the same family and it was one big family tree now fast forward about eight nine years later i find out about philip jose farmer and his books tarzan live and doc savage's apocalyptic life and i've been part of you know that type of community for a while so i'll be returning to be with them at pulp fest farmer con i think it's going to this year be in either in cincinnati or in pennsylvania i think but we'll be having our convention possibly in July. So I'm looking forward to seeing them since it's been a three-year absence due to mostly not having a lot of time and a lot of family tragedies that took up most of my time for that time. But now I like, you know, good crossovers. And if you look on my wall, you'll definitely, you know, see that. Like, for instance, on my um, cover page for my Facebook wall is the combination of Black Panther versus the Predators or the Yachts. Mm. And um, I would love if back then in the 90s, if Marvel had did a deal just like DC did with Dark Horse so that they could actually have some of these characters, you know, interact. Say, what would happen if Black Panther was in the jungles? Or if, in fact, the Predators had come over to the outer jungles of Wakanda and wanted to go hunting and they find the man who you just don't want to hunt, you know, Mm -hmm. for any reason. So that's, that's my passions are good crossovers that actually make sense and... I do love a good play on words from time to time. <laughs> but I'm definitely glad to be here to talk to you guys about this great film that has opened up a floodgate of possibilities, some of which are being realized, you know, right now, and some that we won't really know the full scope for years to come. But this movie did its job, and I can't wait to talk more about it. So you mentioned crossovers that make sense and my mind immediately jumps to the one that I thought was the most ridiculous thing ever, which was X-Men and Star Trek. 
that Marvel did. Well, and they did, and they actually they did do that, Nathan, back in the nineties. I know. The, uh, I, I, the that's what I mean. Jim I, Lee, where the Jim Lee Christopher Christopher Claremont X Men met the Star Trek uh, Next Generation cast. And this is just for any listeners who's listening. You can actually still find it <laughs> because it actually had Prof- Professor X meet up with John Luke Picard. Well, it was actually that one was actually a sequel to the one where they met the original cast. Yeah, I remember that. And it was uh, Proteus and Gary Mitchell teamed up against them. <laughs> That's right, Nathan. I remember that. Yeah. Right, but anyway. yeah. So you know, it's funny that people talk about the Doctor Who Star Trek uh, thing that they did a number of years ago, but X-Men and Star Trek, they met first. Right. Well, it is great to have you on the podcast, Lucas. Thank you, Nathan. Yeah, Thank no you. problem. So we are going to forego the uh, five-minute controversy today, just because I think to uh, get in everything that we have to talk about with Black Panther, we're going to need all the time that we have. Okay, but but can we just preemptively say I was right? <laughs> That's never been the case, Ryan, so why would we say it now? (laughs) Um, So, before we dive into the topic, we're going to take a pause here uh, just for a promo for another five podcast. Hi, I'm Joe Heath. And I'm Tony Heath. And we host the Watchathon a Rassilon. A journey through all of Doctor Who, one serial at a time. Listen in and you will learn about... Two facts! Tune in and hear our... Dinobots! Find out how little we actually know about science, history... Doctor Who! And pretty much anything else. The Watchathon of Rassilon. A proud member of the ESO Network. Available wherever you get your podcast fix. Keep calm and Rassilon. Goodbye, and I love you. And we're back. And so today we're going to talk about one of Marvel's animal-themed superheroes that teaches us that with great power comes great responsibility. And by that, I'm of course referring to Black Panther. Um, So uh, it's one of the jokes I've been making since this movie is that Black Panther is teaching us with great power comes great responsibility better than Spider-Man does. But It's true. It's true, Nathan. It really is. That's a great analogy. But just to get into the topic, let's first talk about the fact that Black Panther first appeared in the MCU with Civil War. So how did everybody feel about his uh, appearance in Civil War? Well, before I saw it, when it was just announced, and this was before Marvel had you know, the, the, the time, the custody sharing of Spider-Man, I had thought that, well, they're just using Black Panther in the role that Spider-Man was in and the civil war storyline in the comics. Mm-hmm. So I was like, eh, okay, sure. Why not? I guess let's, let's see how it turns out. And then they got Spider-Man back and I thought, Oh wow. Now black Panther's just going to be completely, it's going to be pointless having them there. It's like, they've just gone too far that it's going to be shoehorned and it's going to be awkward and I'm not going to like it. And then I saw it and I loved civil war, but frankly, he stole the movie. Every scene he was in black Panther, it was, it, they managed to, the Russo brothers managed to tell a cohesive story with something upwards of, 
279 characters <laughs> and at the same time give each of them something to do but manage to tell not one but two origin stories mm-hmm. of important characters and at least well spider-man's we took a lot for granted obviously like you know uncle ben but uh with <laughs> <laughs> that, that was for you david <laughs> but with putting black on the panther, gauntlets <laughs> <laughs> but with the black panther this was a character that by and large most of the movie going audience that didn't read comics wasn't familiar with they introduced him and made him likable and approachable and understandable and just really the breakout star of Civil War. Yeah. Angie, what did you think of Black Panther in Civil War? Chadwick Boseman just totally blew me away. I fell in love with that character basically immediately after he appeared on my screen, and I have just been stoked about Black Panther ever since. Uh, Lucas, what about you? Chadwick, I knew when I saw him in 42 with Harrison Ford, which is the biopic about Jackie Robinson. And then I found out he was playing um, T'Challa, my T'Challa, that I said, yeah, this is the perfect kid to play that character. Because if you look at him, there's only two characters or two actors that look like T'Challa in the original Fantastic Four 52 and 53 done by Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. And that was Sidney Poitier and Chadwick Boseman. And so when he actually came in, I said, okay, that's the kid. Now, his portrayal is definitely one of reserved power, but it is focused reserved power. So when he initially thinks that Bucky is responsible for his father's death, he's completely and totally aimed at dealing with the Winter Soldier at any cost. And it's the, it, just like with this movie we're about to talk about, the good thing I love about T'Challa is that he's a character as constantly growing. The man that he was at the beginning of Civil War was not the man he was at the end of Civil War. Just like the man he started out as in Black Panther will not be the man that we see at the end of Black Panther. And that's why I love so much because for some characters they just go through it and they're the same person that they were when the movie started. So you see growth. And that's one of the best attributes that Chadwick has been able to show, you know, in his presence as T'Challa. And he did a great job. And I'm not going to lie to you, as much as I love this new costume in the sequel, because there will be a sequel because this film is doing so well, I want a fusion between the Black Panther costume of Civil War and this costume. And I actually got ideas which we can actually go to down, you know, down the road with this podcast here. But no, Chadwick knocked out of the park. He was my favorite character in Civil War, and it was great to find out that he was having a movie because the lead-up to him goes all the way back to Iron Man 2. And so when um, we finally got it, and I knew it was concrete, I was very happy, and I was definitely happy with what I got in Civil War. And it's my second favorite Marvel Cinematic film because of his portrayal. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting what you just brought up because... I mean, well, first of all, yes, there is going to be a Black Panther too. I keep saying that the the Marvel people are swimming through all the cash that's falling on their head, trying to greenlight it right now. Post. But and when you said that, I love that post. I was laughing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> It'll happen. It's just they have to get through all that cash first. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, that's interesting. The the thing about growth, and I definitely want to circle back to it. But uh, Jen, how did you feel about Black Panther in the uh, Civil War? Like everybody else, I thought he was amazing. I thought that it was very interesting in a movie where you've got these two characters that are kind of vying for moral superiority. The person who actually ends up having the moral superiority is Black Panther. 
in terms of both the fact that he had, you know, he, he was getting vengeance for his father's death to begin with. And then, you know, the way that he treated our villain at the end there was, uh, again, much more of a good guy kind of ending than than you would have expected from either Steve or Tony at that time, who were both just totally, <laughs> totally in their own own world in terms of fighting each other. But uh, yeah, he, he really stole the show in, in Civil War. He was fantastic. And I was, as soon as I saw that, I was super excited for this movie and just everything, everything that I had been hearing all along the way in terms of, you know, how much prep they were doing in, the, in terms of world building and, you know, the, the sets and the costumes and everything else. And, and I went in with very, very high expectations and I was not disappointed. Yeah, as far as I uh, felt about uh, Black Panther, it was amazing to me that in a movie where you had two big personalities, like, I mean, Tony's like three or four personalities, but Steve, you know, is also a very, you know, he's a very powerful moving character that you had Black Panther really standing head and shoulders above them. I mean, T'Challa was so magnetic, so interesting in that movie, Mm -hmm. and was someone that I really wanted to see again, and that was one of the big takeaways from that movie. So, yeah, I was very stoked for uh, Black Panther coming out. Uh, And so, we're recording this uh, a little over a week after the movie debuted, and it is breaking record after record. There are truckloads of cash just pouring over, raining on top of Marvel Studios, really, right now. So I wanted to ask, what do we think is the key to this movie's success? I think really, just like what we just saw with Wonder Woman, there was this need to see this character realized. Because when I was coming up, one of the big emphasis was that maybe there was a possibility of getting a Black Panther film back in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Wesley Snipes. I remember reading the articles. Mm -hmm. And John Singleton. And it was great now to actually find out why that fell through. And I'm glad, in hindsight, it didn't come to be. Because it would have been a laughing stock, just like people remember still as a laughing stock, because of what was planned by Singleton. (laughs) Not Wesley, but Singleton. Mm. And as much as I like Singleton, in some of his own films, I don't think he had a grasp as to the character and the mythology of what it meant to be the Black Panther, or even Wakanda. But fast forward to that, here we go, and they're setting up breadcrumbs. First time we hear about it is with Captain America, or should I say with Iron Man 2. When you see in the background when Tony is talking, I think, to Nick Fury, you see in the um, background a map of Africa, and inside you see an actual, you know, electronic magnifying thing that's positioned. And you look at it, you say, that's got to be Wakanda. Mm-hmm. Now, you keep going in, you get Captain America, the first Avenger, and they talk about, you know, vibranium um, and so forth. And that's a story. If things go well, I want to see my boy, God, I can't believe I'm forgetting his name, the guy who plays uh, young um, Howard Stark. Oh, yeah. Uh, Dominic, Dominic Cooper. Yeah, Dominic Cooper. Yeah. I want to see a story where Dominic Cooper finds his way to Wakanda, and he meets up with Azuri, uh, T'Challa's grandfather, and he makes that deal so he can come back with that vibranium. But this whole thing has pretty much been great world building that Marvel has set up from the get-go to say, okay, we're going to make this happen. And you got to realize this. Nate Moore 
the executive producer for Black Panther, has been working on this script for Black Panther. The first uh, draft was done as of 2010. And so fast forward now, eight years from now, from, you know, from that point, and here we have it finally realized with the director that understands it, with a great costume designer by the name of Ruth E. Carter, who made everything possible, and the whole entire cast was all in on it to make this very successful because things is this. When I look at this film and what I love so much about it is that those who were responsible for the success did so because they were in love with the concept of Black Panther, of Wakanda, of the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe, or at least the, this microcosm of the, of the macrocosm that is the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So just like what we saw with Wonder Woman, where we got a chance to see her start up with Batman v Superman, Don Justin just said, oh my God, that's Wonder Woman. She was literally, she stole the film from the two, just like with Black Panther and Civil War, Wonder Woman stole the film for Batman and Superman in that film. Everybody was talking about her. And then she finally gets her film. So it's almost like they're almost in parallel with each other, you know, in tandem. And just like well, most strong women intelligent women saw with Wonder Woman when we went to see it. And I said, oh my God, I can't believe I saw this. It's the same effect. But for us, we've been waiting well over, for me, it's been well over 30 years. For others, it's been possibly ever since the 1960s and 70s, this concept. So now, you know, we have the technology for it, but we also have people who care about the material. And you know what happens when people care about it and there's a good budget thrown at the actual project, you get this type of success. And so for me, every time I hear that we are coming towards $800 million for Black Panther, I'm saying, of course, because those who did it loved it, the whole concept. So that's, that's pretty much it. I like that you brought up the, the fact that Marvel sprinkled seeds building up to it. Because this is something that we hear a lot of, well, you know, Marvel should have done it quicker or, you know, Captain Marvel needs to be done quicker and all these other things. And I'm always saying, you know, Marvel has proven that they take the required time to make a good movie. So I don't want them to rush movies like Black Panther or Captain Marvel because you know what would happen if it did poorly. People yes. would start saying, well, because it's starring, you know, uh, a person of color, you know, that's why, you know, people don't want to watch that. You know, they, they always ignore exactly. the fact that the film was broke. Right. Because, like, you brought up Steel as another thing. I, I saw Steel. Steel was one of two movies in my life where I went to the front desk and demanded my time back. You too? I didn't. I, I, didn't. I was the only one. <laughs> I remember being 17 years old. <laughs> Come into the account and say, take of my money back. I'm sorry, sir. We don't do refunds. I said, you're going to figure out a way to give me back my money because I was in there for just 20 minutes and I said, I can't do this no more. Right. Wait, Nathan, what was the other one? I have to know. Wing Commander. Oh, oh okay. man. Me, me and you must be sharing the same brain. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I told him, you know what? You don't have to give me a refund. Just give me my time back. Oh, yeah, man. I love yeah. the I love the dazed looks that that would get. <laughs> but anyway, but Jen, uh, what what would you say is the key to uh, Black Panther's success? Well, I think as Lucas has touched on the the fact that this is we we, we haven't had a 
and and I know everyone says, oh yeah, but we had Blade. Yeah, we we did have Blade, but but since since the the renaissance of of the comic book movie era, we haven't had a, a lot of characters that weren't white men. Mm-hmm. And there was there was a long period of time at the beginning of the MCU where you know Ike Perlmutter still had a very heavy hand in things and thought that you know th- that we're just making this for little boys, you know, and that they they don't want to have heroes that don't look exactly like them and so this this was a this was a really long time in coming but i think as as you pointed out it was it was well worth the wait you know i'm glad that they waited until now to do it given given what a great job that they did with it and i also think that it is it is extremely timely they couldn't have known this when they put it on the schedule but between this and luke cage and black lightning bulletproof black men are like that that's that's the thing right now and it's it's very politically charged even without saying anything it's pretty timely yes timely and part of the times like i said they were able um because going fast forward with the last statement that t'challa makes at the rebuilt un building the same building that his father died in that explosion when he was talking about you know building bridges instead of you know barriers and walls they wrote that but that is actually an african proverb as an ethiopian african proverb mm. but that was as of 2014 when they were writing that and they put it and it was actually ryan cougar's wife that actually inputted that so here we are but it was just a film that came at the right time and that's another reason why this film is doing so well because depending on where you fall on the political spectrum you can see that there's a problem that there is a need for inspiration and that's the reason why this movie's making gangbusters because there has to be solutions and it's just interesting that it's taking a fictional king from a fictional highly technological african um, nation to actually say you know what we can actually fix our own problems so what's the problem here? <laughs> I, I I saw somebody joking. You, you talked about the the fictional African nation. Somebody joking about how Wakanda seems more fantastic than Asgard does. Oh yes. And, and it's funny that because I was kind of worried with Black Panther coming out that they were going to try to ground it in reality like they've tried to do with so many of their projects of kind of take down the comic book elements. And it, I saw the trailers and I was like, oh, nope, they went full Wakanda. <laughs> they did that, but also there, there's a way for you to become fantastical, but yet still be a part of the world, which right. is what they're able to. It's almost like if JK, you know, let's say as much. Let's just say if Tolkien was able to transport his Lord of the Rings and Hobbit tales into modern day. Let's just say that that race had existed, you know, in the cover of the mist or whatever. And, you know, their descendants, you know, Bilbo Baggins and all those guys, their descendants come into our world via like some like um, Harry Potter or whatever. It would be on the same type of level. I mean, I saw this when I saw like the Fantastic Beast and where to find them. Sometimes, even with the fantastical, there's a level of realism that makes you almost wish like crazy that such places existed, you know, amongst us. Which is why I was so happy that, you know, Ryan Coogler and everybody else treated it with such care. That says, you know what, yeah, this is completely outlandish, but I bet you would love to come here, wouldn't you? 
Well, and that's what um, Fantastic Four did so well in those early days was exploring these ancient civilizations that lived, you know, that yeah. was lived in secret on Earth. There's Atlantis, there's Wakanda, yeah. there's Adelaide, you know, there's all these places that are hidden, fantastic places all over the world that if you just know where to look. You know, that sense of wonder, you know, and I, I always loved that. And I was really glad that they, at least with Wakanda, I think that they have succeeded. And I wonder how they're going to, how they're going to do that now that we know that, well, we know that within maybe six months to a year that the ink will be dry with this Disney Fox deal. It's going to happen because too much money to be made for it not to happen. So I'm wondering how is it that, it, that T'Challa will still be able to encounter the Fantastic Four if Wakanda is known to the world, yeah. you know, what, how, how's that going to be, you know, in play? Because the only other option I can see now, and this goes back to what we possibly said earlier, is maybe the civilization that they find is the hidden Atlant. Maybe they reboot, you know, <laughs> the Inhumans, right. you know, and, you know, that was just something that, you know, they tried on TV Nobody really watched it, so we're just going to ignore that all that happened, <laughs> and so forth. And then maybe, just like what we saw in Fantastic Four Annual Five, T'Challa just happens to be, you know, going, you know, towards his own personal island, Panther Island, which is not that far from where they are. And then we get, you know, that played out, you know, where he comes there, and they say, "Oh, what interesting, you know, there's another hidden civilization, and it's, you know, the Inhumans." And then we get to see him interact with the movie, the true movie version of the Inhumans and so forth. But uh, that, 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 that was going through me within the last week or so, you know, of how can they do it? Because the Inhumans have to be part of the MCU. You know, what they left in that, you know, series can't be the end of them. You know, they have to just say, you know, what? we got to circle back to that later. Yeah, well, we'll. We'll see. I mean, the the problem is that the Inhumans are, you know, in the eyes of Marvel, a TV property now. Mm-hmm. And so, and the TV and movie divisions aren't getting along with each other. Right now, they're not. Right. right so, so not. yeah, we'll that see. I think that there's some stink around the Inhumans property right now anyway. So they'll probably oh, yeah. go, you know, do other things first and kind of hope people forget about it before they try to reboot. But, um. Ryan, uh, do you do you have any further thoughts on uh, things that make Black Panther made Black Panther such a success? Okay, it's a Marvel movie, so there's going to be a baseline success mm. right there. We've come to the at this point. What's this? The 18th movie, or I think I believe uh, that's correct. 19th. I believe so. Yeah. yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah, the 18th movie. So we know we can have certain expectations, and it met those. But I think where this one. What made this one work is that it's more than the sum of its parts. It, it hits. It's a comic book formula through a comic, com, comic book movie formula through and through, and it follows it whether it's you know Iron Man or Doctor Strange. But it it does you know set in Wakanda, but it manages to actually break free of that to be something more, which is what works. And it would be short-sighted of us and disingenuous to not acknowledge that this is a an important film socially and politically as as we have said when the second time i saw it and this was uh this past sunday i was sitting in the theater and next to me was a woman with her grandmother who came in in a wheelchair and she the entire time that the movie was going on the grandmother had no idea what was going. She she'd never seen a superhero movie in her life. She'd never seen, <laughs> you know, she had no idea what Marvel was or anything like that. 
And so I, I kind of listened because it, it really it warmed my heart listening to her granddaughter explain to her, okay, you know, kind of what's going on a little bit, you know, and if ever there was a reference or whatever. And and the granddaughter had seen it at least two times before. <laughs> so they're, they're, not only am I coming back, not only is everyone coming out coming back who would see it anyways, the fans to begin with, but this is something more than that. This is bringing in people who would not see any other Marvel movie. Yeah. That's Just what's like- going on. Yeah, Brian, I have to echo that because that's what my, uh, my mother and my stepfather intend to do. They don't watch these types of movies at all, but they keep hearing this buzz. Like what's this movie and whatever. And I've had to literally like school them on the history of it. And I said, <laughs> really? She said, so and just to look at my the look at my mom's eyes, like so you're telling me that back then Stanley and Jack Kirby created an African king in a highly technological kingdom in Africa and he does all this stuff. She says, Oh yeah, we going. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, you know, they have yet to go, but that's what's being planned out and I hope they have a chance to because most of the time I'm checking to see if there's any openings for seats. Specifically yeah. where I live. Most of them are sold out. Yeah, yeah. I saw I saw the first it's showing. Thing. It's the weirdest yeah. thing, guys. Yeah, the first showing on Sunday, and all that was left was front row seats. It feels like the Titanic again, guys. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it does. It feels like literally. The t- yeah. This is why I say it's fair to compare the movie to Wonder Woman. I mean, Lucas, before the show started, you were telling me that some people don't like that comparison, but I think that it's fair because the same kind of, you know, I heard the same kinds of things, you know, women who don't watch superhero movies coming out to watch Wonder Woman because they understood what it represented and they wanted to see a serious depiction of a strong female character, you know, a superhero on screen. And so it's the same thing. I mean, people want to see the strong, you know, African character, you know, depicted right on screen. And so, yeah, it's a cultural phenomenon. It really is like into Afrofuturism and just high tech and just showing a different viewpoint. If you look at how culture has been shown, especially by the, the 90s, with the, I guess, the revamping of black exploitation with New Jack City and even King of New York, that the whole thing has been, well, if we can't show slave narratives, we got to show drug dealers, we got to show crooked cops, we got to show prostitution, and so forth. It's been, and this is what's been allowed in to be the stereotypical, yeah, well, that's pretty much what they get, so, or worst part is oh the token black individual and the horror or science fiction who nine times out of ten is not going to make it to the movie and this is what we've had to deal with for decades upon decades and so here we got a person who commands the screen who not only is the smartest man in the room but he surrounds himself with smart intelligent and strong people and they're able to get the job done and so this is something that you know has been definitely needed for decades to be seen because if you know other than me growing up and seeing shows like mantis yeah with uh, the guy who played marcus dixon and alias there really wasn't much you know out there for us to actually look at and of course i love blade but blade was not when it was even put out there in 96 97 it was not put out there to be seen as a marvel film it was just a action horror thriller film that happens to be part of the marvel product and you look at it they definitely overhyped blade because you look at the 1970s version of blade he wishes he was the wesley snipes version right. of blade. <laughs> <laughs> 
he was like pretty much a wannabe black exploitation who instead of carrying literally swords, he carried uh, what they call those um, stakes, mm-hmm. you know, stakes and maybe an axe or whatever. And he had like a pouch or whatever. But at no time would you ever thought that that would translate to what we got. So Wesley, once again, has a hand in getting us to what we got. But it's almost as if because of his own personal problems, as well as we kind of we do this collective forgetting this um, selective amnesia where we say, oh, well, anything that happened prior to Iron Man in 2008 really doesn't really count. And I get very, very, very disappointed and almost disgusted when I hear that because I remember a time when all this was a pipe dream, you know, by kids, you know, in a playground or at home. I used to dream about X-Men movie. I used to tell my brother, oh yeah, in 892, they got a plan for X-Men movie. They said, yeah, we'll see. It took eight years for it to happen. You know, same thing for Spider-Man. You know, these were dreams for little kids, you know, who used to collect comic books or, you know, what they used to have, comic cards. They used to be like baseball cards. And at no time back then in the 90s or late 80s did we think, oh, yeah, all this is going to happen at no time. And so this has all been one big fruition of things that built up. And I'm enjoying it. This is the best time to be a comic book geek. Yeah. to see this 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 movie has word of mouth has been this movie's best friend i, I know it doesn't factor in inflation but it beat avengers second week totals mm-hmm. and that's that's saying something right there yeah, yeah right i do want to just say one thing because blade's been thrown around a couple of times i'm gonna say this i feel like people are getting too extreme both ways on the blade issue of people saying how dare you ignore blade versus blade doesn't matter Look, here's the thing. Blade was not a huge movie. But what we should recognize with Blade is that it was the beginning of the comic book movie revolution. You look at Batman and Robin, which was the previous big comic book company movie, and then you look at Blade and you tell me who was taking it seriously. Not just that, but that, but, but the, the movie that you just mentioned, Nathan, mm-hmm. that one almost killed the entire industry altogether. Right. Right. And Blade was what saved it. Because people saw that when... Because it was supposed to be a nothing film. It had a tiny budget. But people Mm -hmm. went to it in droves. Word of mouth helped that movie, too. And people loved it. And that's the whole reason why we got X-Men and Spider-Man. Was because suddenly the studio said, Well, geez, if a nothing character like Blade can make all this money, then what can we do with these big properties like X-Men and Spider-Man? And suddenly the whole thing, the whole revolution that we've had since 2000 started, and that's the genesis of the MCU right there, is then Marvel said, oh, well, maybe the few characters we have the rights to left we'll start working with. And, you know, the rest is history. So I think Blade's importance should not be ignored. But at the same time, there's a reason why this movie is bigger and more important because it's part of the huge franchise. It's a bigger character and it's more mainstream and it's reaching more people. So I don't want to take anything away from Black Panther, but I do believe that Blade should be recognized for its role in comic book movies. I completely agree, Nathan. Well said. Thank you. Uh, And so, Angie, I'm sorry, we've all been talking over here. (laughs) Did you have anything to add about uh, Black Panther and, and, uh, you know, why it's so uh, popular? Yeah, I mean, I agree with 
pretty much everything that's already been said. Two things. My husband actually quoted Blade to me yesterday, so <laughs> it's still resonating. Right, yes. But the second thing I think that no one's really touched on yet, and maybe this can be a segue to talk about Michael B. Jordan, mm. which I could talk about for two hours. Okay. I really think the supporting cast for this film was just incredible. Um, and you know, Marvel movies have always been great at casting their main character. I mean, I don't think I've I've ever watched a Marvel movie and go, huh, I don't think that was a great casting choice. They're all great. They've been a lot more spotty with their supporting cast. There's been some great supporting characters, some not so great ones, but they've had a villain problem for a mm. long time. Oh, God, yes. Um, yes. And I think this movie, the entire supporting cast is just incredible. Their interactions with each other, their personalities, their characterizations, no matter how much time any of them got, I felt like they did amazing things with it. And I, you know, and maybe it's that Chadwick Boseman did play T'Challa as so quiet and reserved and powerful that he didn't need, to, the, the other characters could could speak and have have more time and he it didn't take away from his story it just enhanced it and added to it and i thought that was incredible it certainly is something of a contrast with tony stark who has to be the center of attention in the room <laughs> yeah. constantly isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. it it's interesting i'm glad that you mentioned that angie and nathan um because in a sense t'challa is kind of like the anti tony stark mm -hmm. he has the resources definitely he has more of the resources than tony tony actually wishes he had that type of resources <laughs> oh, oh, all right lucas sorry i'm just gonna interrupt you really quick has everyone seen the meme where tony says something like hey t'challa this is my lab and t'challa's like oh yes we have one like this in wakanda in every elementary school cool. yeah. <laughs> yeah. As, soon as, I saw, as soon as i saw that um nathan i actually posted that <laughs> oh, okay yeah. I, I had to i had to i was like say yeah and his well, sister and think about his sister can now uh, interact and I can't wait for her to actually be in the Infinity War because there has to be a scene with her and Bruce Banner and T'Challa where the, the, these big four are the ones who are talking and help, you can even bring in Doctor Strange too these minds having to interact and then this girl happens to the school almost everybody <laughs> and say uh, yeah I hear what you guys are saying but you're doing it wrong this is what you need to do and then they look at each other like uh, and he, and of course, Tony would be the one with the, you know, flip comment of, and how old is she? <laughs> uh, well, only sixteen. I agree with I, with all that, but I, I think you actually saw that difference in personality between Tony and T'Challa in Civil War. I re, I recall just in insofar as having to be the center of attention. Uh, may, maybe it's because T'Challa is just his parenting. He had a father who was there versus Tony who didn't, but mm -hmm. um. I recall when Clint was saying, you know, hi, my name is Clint. I don't think we met. And T'Challa's response was, I don't care. Yeah. Tony would have been, it would have been a, a back and forth, you know, who can have the best one-liners. T'Challa doesn't have to do that. He, no. Literally his actions speak for him. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's all about the mission for him. That's it. And so, like I said, that's the reason why, you know, this was T'Challa's coming out party to the world this was him even though we saw him in civil war i don't think that he was in the forefront his daddy was in the forefront mm -hmm. and his daddy died and then after that it was i must avenge my father and when it concerns the real person responsible for his father's death i would say that both killmonger 
and Zemo have been the best villains so far, as far as where we're talking about cool and calculating. They don't care about bravado. They just care about getting the job done. You know, Loki would do it, but he would do it with style. And don't get me wrong, I love Loki. He's a diva. Exactly. There's a difference between a diva and a person who just, okay, I want to get from point A to point B and do it as quick as possible, and this is what I'm going to do. And so they have done, it's almost as if there's been a resurgence within the villain market for the MCU as far as where having very good villains who are strategists, tacticians, who think many steps ahead. And so you need to have characters like T'Challa and even Tony who have to think many steps ahead. That that ups their game. That ups the ante. And so we're now at that point because it's now with the whole thing about Disney buying Fox, the one that they're going to have to literally take a look at is going to be when Dr. Doom comes on scene. Because that's all he is. He and Kang, the Conqueror, that they think on multiple dimensions and multiple plays. And so when you have a villain that is able to bring that, then that ups the game for the characters, for the main characters who have to go up against them. They have to grow. They have to think better. They have to act better. And so it's, 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 it's being fun to see the evolution now. Because you guys are right. There's definitely been a villain problem. Especially when you look at Thor Dark World. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what was going on. I, 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 I have no idea what the aim was for those guys. I don't know. I, I'm, uh, I'm still watching. It's still hard for me to figure out what was the ultimate aim. What Bring everything back in the darkness. For what point? Because that was their universe. Okay. But... <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, I would argue that all the MCU villains get a bad rap. They're almost always excellent actors, uh, you know, with a hint of something interesting about them, but they're not there to shine. They're there just to be a, 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 a catalyst for the hero. So it's the, the exceptions that do jump out, like Killmonger or Loki or um, Ego. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, it's, it's exceptional when you do have one jump out like like here in black panther but otherwise zemo he's zemo is just there to get tony and cap to hate each other mm-hmm. and otherwise it's just let's get on with the rest of the story yeah. yeah but i get lucas's point also though because i mean as far as pure villainy goes what zemo did breaking up the avengers none of those other guys did you know he because and because he wasn't front and center because he didn't give them a target or didn't present himself as a target he was able to do that. So, yes, I mean, from the cerebral calculating point of view, Zemo's a good villain. And thankfully, I mean, I'm, I, it actually gratifies me knowing that we've had villains like this because with Thanos coming up, <laughs> you know, he's not just a brawler. He's not just a powerhouse. Thanos is as clever as Doom or just about, but also supremely powerful physically. So I, I'm hoping that that means that we get justice with Thanos being that kind of a calculating villain as well. Because, yeah, that, that's one that if he doesn't work, we're going to have two movies that are really going to fall flat. You know, I'm worried there that people's hopes are just going to get too high. That it's going to be the prequels. We've been building Thanos up for 10 years now. Mm. So, yeah, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
but yeah, let's start talking about the uh, supporting cast. Let's save the villains a little bit. I, I'm going to talk about, I want to talk about Claw and Killmonger a little bit later, but let's just talk about the, I guess, the royal family slash the, the people around the world, the royal family in uh, Wakanda. And, oh, and I guess Martin Freeman, too. We'll, we'll have to throw him in there as the Tolkien guy. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> I see what you did there. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I see what you did there, buddy. I'm proud of you, but I see what you did. My <laughs> wife absolutely was gaga for Okoye. She thought that that was like the most awesome, interesting character ever. Yeah, she was really cool. And yeah, and she was great. You know, and, and what I found really interesting is the honor that she had. When yeah. she thought T'Challa was dead and. You know, Shuri and the mom and everything are like, oh, come on, let's run away. You know, let's let's go like form a revolution. She's like, no, you know, I'm loyal. You know, I'm loyal to the throne. And so I'm going to stay. Koye, for me, is the most valuable player in that film. And I can't say she's not. My favorites, of course, are Shuri and M'Baku. But I love me some Koye because she had no chill. She just <laughs> wanted to do the job. And you're right. She stays at her post because for her is about the kingdom of Wakanda. You know, this isn't, you know, revolution. This is maybe if I stay at my post, I might be able to affect some change here. I might be able to do something. Whereas Nakia, Nakia is just, it's interesting. I was listening to another podcast, uh, Three Black Geeks, and they made the analogy that both Nakia, that's T'Challa's love interest, as well as part of the War Dogs, which is the spy organization that Wakanda created to send out spies throughout the world, that her and Killmonger's message were pretty much similar. It's just that she had a more diplomatic tone than Killmonger ever did, which is, I want to help my people out there. I don't know about that. Yeah, but really what I'm saying is this, is that she wanted to affect change and say, you know what? We can actually give more of ourselves to the world than just being hidden. Whereas Killmonger said, you know what? No, I just want to use all of our resources militarily to create worldwide revolution with me at the helm. Well, I mean, when I think of Killmonger, I think of the line from The Dark Knight, which is some people just want to watch the world burn. And that's exactly, yeah, 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 that, that's him, that's him, that's exactly him. But he's, he's like, I'd say he is like Castro Joker. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because Castro back in the 60, 50s and 60s pretty much said the same thing of worldwide, you know, revolution and stuff like that. Just as long as he was at the head mm-hmm. of it. Yeah, because you see as soon as he's as soon as he realizes other people could become king, he's like, burn it all down. You know, I yeah, mean, just, it's just done. Like, it's funny, too. And I almost wish I was on that show because his analogy is not just even Castro like he's. If you ever remember the 80s, there was a series, there was a TV miniseries called Shaka, Shaka Zulu. Yes. And he's so much like a modern Shaka Zulu because Shaka only saw himself and his own pain and his own kingdom and says, there will be nobody after me. So when he burnt the heart-shaped herb after his experience, he says, no, just burn it all. That was reminiscent. It was almost like, Ryan Coogler remembered that series and said, huh, I can throw this, you know, homage to it because he was definitely acting like Shaka Zulu in that scene. I was like, oh, my God, I've seen this before. It's been over 30 years, but I saw this. And even history said that this happened. So uh, I said, yeah, this guy is both Castro 
and Shaka. And he is a person who definitely wants to watch the role burn because he's a man who's full of pain. And he wants to make the rest of the role full of pain. And that's a problem, which is why he's such a good bad guy. Yeah, I mean, when he mentions that he wants to kill all the children of all, you know, he doesn't want to just kill the people who have, you know, wronged people. He wants to kill all their children, too. It's when he goes beyond the level of being a freedom fighter and wanting to create justice in the world to being a tyrant and, you exactly. know, a, a killer, exactly. you know, basically, yeah. Where Whereas Nakia is saying, we can actually give all of our resources, not just technology, but medical, everything like that. Let's get out into the world, you know, and T'Challa saying, oh, no, that's not been our ways and so like that. And so that's what I was talking about with growth. We see a person who starts out idolizing his father. Then he has a crisis of faith. But because of that crisis of faith, he grows and says, you know what? I have to become my own person, which is what Nakia, you know, if I could make an analogy, Nakia is like the positive Lady Macbeth to T'Challa's. <laughs> you know, Lord Macbeth, because she's saying you get to choose what type of king you are. And if that king is a person who's able to go out into the world and help the world, then do so, but do so for the right reasons. And so that's one of the big taglines of the film. Now, he can be reserved and so forth, because if you look at the comics, especially the Christopher Priest run, he's enigmatic. You know, he's very unknown. You very rarely get a chance to actually know who T'Challa is inside. In fact, this movie is more cerebral when it concerns T'Challa than the comics, you know, because definitely with, you know, with Eric K. Ross, he was pretty much based on Michael J. Fox when he did Spin City. And they brought him over and said, this is the perfect person to tell our story from our own perspective of who T'Challa, the Black Panther, is and what that actually means, because the child is not going to tell us that. And so th that's the reason why, even in the Priest run, even the Hutland run, his supporting characters have more shine than the actual man himself. He's the hero, but everybody around him gets to shine as well. And so Ryan Coogler and Nate Moore, they delved into the books, they delved into the history, and they said, yes, we can actually translate this. And so you get Okoye. You get Shuri, you get Nakia, you get M'Baku, you get uh, Wakabi, and you get, you know, Ramonda and all these other characters, people, and then Missouri, and they all get the shine. When I put in my Facebook review after seeing the movie this past Monday or a week ago is that there was no weak character throughout the film. Everybody got a chance to shine. You got a chance to see their growth and you got to see their motivations. And so that's one of the reasons why, for me, this is one of the best things that Marvel has done in a while. To echo Beth uh, for you, Nathan, about Okoye, I, another thing I did this past weekend while in a different city is trying to track down an Okoye Funko Pop for my <laughs> wife's collection. And they are nowhere to be found. I found Shuri, found Nakia, found you know, T'Challa, found Killmonger, but she collects badass uh, women character genre women characters. And Okoye is the one she's dying for, and it, it is not—it exists, but it is not to be had in a retail store. 
Yeah, I mean, she is a a Wonder Woman-like superhero, and I don't mean that to, to say that it's a copy or whatever, it's just that on that same level. I mean, so yeah, it's a, she, she's, a, she's a really cool lady, and I, I really, like I said, I liked the fact that she had that say, until T'Challa was revealed as alive to her, and then she was able to say, oh, well, you know, the challenge is not finished, and so, you know, so she can, with honor, say, look, I don't have to follow this guy anymore, let's finish the challenge, and then we'll see, you know, but yeah, yeah, I I found that fascinating, because usually in in a movie like this, if somebody stays behind and doesn't join the revolution that was part of the heroes, like, friends, it's because they're gonna be the secret spy or whatever, you know, and it was like, no, she was completely, you know, loyal to the throne, and so I really liked that, I thought that that was an interesting choice absolutely yeah it was she found the loophole <laughs> right exactly so jen was there anyone that really stood out to you amongst the supporting cast that you want to talk about well of course i i, I liked everyone that, that we've mentioned before i don't think we've really given shuri her due yet mm. i just i loved her two bits i i thought that she was she was fantastic i too am looking forward to her uh, her interactions with the rest of the Avengers crew. See, and I had thought about how that, that first meeting with Tony was going to go to, like where, where they're all standing around and, uh, you know, she, she just bursts out laughing and she's like, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> and at first Tony's all offended. And then she says something that like gets his, uh, his his tech nerd brain engaged and he goes over and like kisses her hand and T'Challa steps in front of her and is like, hey, back off, man. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, that's just my little fanfic thing for the day. Um, <laughs> it counts. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Verging on the edge of Slash, but that's good. <laughs> well, they can always do what uh, they did in the comics where Tony was pretty much blaming himself in front of uh, T'Challa while they were working out some type of situation. And T'Challa smacks him, like literally just like, really just like smacks him. And... It knocks some sense into Tony and says, oh, because Tony was saying, I've been going by this on a technical level. I haven't applied other, you know, means of dealing with this problem. And I don't think that Marvel will do something like that, but it could be almost like a similar situation where he comes into her lab or whatever and they talk. And then she literally just, you know, verbally knocks some sense into him and says, you know what? You went about this this way. Of course, you would colonize her, and you know, Best and, then, and then that would that would be it. And I could see that. I could see him giving her that, like you know, that smirk look that he usually does. You know, when he's both impressed as well as like saying, you know, because the thing is with Tony is this: oh <laughs> Tony loves his. Tony loves himself. I think Tony loves himself even more than he loves Pepper. Oh, yeah. So about uh-huh. Shuri that I was trying to say. Yeah. Five minutes ago. I, I think she's a great character. I think she was wonderful because she humanized T'Challa. You know, she, she was able to, you know, there he is being all sophisticated and dignified and everything. And she's like, hey, what do you have on your feet? You know, yeah. uh, she, she was able to, to, to humanize him. She was, uh, she provided some of the, the coolest, you know, what, what is it that the guy in, in Spider-Man says, be, being the guy in the chair? The chair. Yeah. Exactly. She was the guy in the chair for him. And Literally. Exactly. Exactly. Like that whole cute. thing with the uh, driving driving the car in, in, in virtual reality was so cool. I loved her, her interactions with Ross, Martin Freeman's character. That was just hilarious. I read a really, really great piece last week about how they inverted the white gaze for this 
And so rather than there were so many places where they could have done it through Ross's perspective and they did the exact opposite. They made Ross look like a complete idiot who, who didn't understand what was going on. So, uh, it was really good. I loved everything that was done with her, and I'm really looking... I've, I've seen pictures of her in uh, Infinity War, so I'm very glad we're going to get to see her again. Yeah. Shuri managed to ground T'Challa. She deflated him, you know, yeah. when his head got too big. Can you see? imagine anyone else giving him the finger? You know? right. Yeah, it, it, Yeah. so that that was... She did it, and but she made it cool. Yeah. That's what siblings do, man. That's what siblings <laughs> do. I think we also need to give the actress some credit for... I mean, she's she's young and she's in a cast that's incredibly talented and incredibly accomplished and she is she owned it. I mean, she was a princess. She floated through that movie like she knew a hundred percent that she had the full adoration of her people and used it. And I I just was so impressed with her. Yeah. Best new Disney princess. <laughs> yes, she is. Yes, she is, yeah. Jennifer. I hope she makes it to Coachella. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Yes. She got the best one-liners. I love sneakers. I think that yeah. that was, like, great. But uh, also, though, when they bring in Martin Freeman and Joe Ross, and she's like... See, when I say Ross, I think of General Ross, so it, it just does funny things to my head. But anyway, when they bring in Martin Freeman, she's like, another broken white boy for me to fix. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was going to be the only mention of Bucky being in Wakanda, but then we get our post credit scene, and we actually see Bucky. And we will talk more about that once we get to that point, because <laughs> I definitely have ideas as to specifically what they were calling him. Mm, okay. But Angie, how about you? Or is there anyone that uh, we haven't talked about yet that you want to talk about? Just a small shout out to M'Baku. I thought especially in comparison to Killmonger as kind of an antagonist that was so honorable and just awesome, just wonderful as a character. I, I just, I don't have anything terribly insightful. I just enjoyed him every time he was on screen. He was funny. Yeah. He, he and Shuri, like I said, were my top favorite because they were so intelligent, but they were just so funny. I mean, especially when after what happened with T'Challa and, you know, his mother and Shuri had to go into hiding and they take the heart-shaped herb for him to, to use only to find out that he has T'Challa, you know, who's in a coma. He talks, you know, <laughs> it's interesting because it's become like a, the new meme now, which is... I don't know how to feel about it, but I see why it's so funny. Ross starts talking to him, and then they start making, you know, gorilla noises mm -hmm. at him to, you know, to shut him up <laughs> and so forth. And then, of course, he says, if you continue to talk, I will feed you to my children and whatever. And then there's a pause. He says, oh, I'm just kidding. We're vegetarians. And that's the type of, you know, comedic timing that I was not expecting. I mean, he showed his presence, especially with his fight with T'Challa on the waterfall. That was very good. But that's the thing. He's a he's a honorable rival. I wouldn't even call M'Baku in this film a bad guy. He is just one of the rivals that T'Challa has known. And just like in the comics, they were friends. They were friends. They grew up together. So even though the only thing that M'Baku cares about is becoming king of Wakanda... And that's all he thinks about 24-7. He does have a sense of honor. He doesn't have a sense of foresight of saying, okay, I could do this, but there's a person right here who's meant to do this. Yeah. And I'm going to give him the um, heart-shaped herb, and maybe it will save his life. Well, it, 
I, I agree, Mbaku. It, it, it is honor for him, but he's also a leader, which yes. means he's also calculating. Giving the herb to T'Challa was repaying a debt, but it also, if you don't think that he, his showing up at the end uh, with the Jabari to help, if you don't think that's he, in his mind, he thinks T'Challa owes him now. That's gonna. I don't know if they'll come back in a sequel or ever come back at all. But that's that. There's a, a calculation in that as well. And I also think that you can. I know we've said we've been saying, oh, Killmonger and Nakia are two sides of the same coin, but Mbaku is the. It's not. It's more of a, a triangle. She. He, he's the other corner of that, where he is strictly complete isolationist and returning to form that the the technology of Wakanda, the vibranium brought about by this girl, you know, is is the wrong direction. So mm-hmm. I think trying to fit any narrative of this movie into a strict duality or dichotomy is really just kind of simplistic and not doing it uh, a fully. Uh, justice i agree that's a good viewpoint because i can definitely see that where he is a return back to the old ways you know he's a stern you know conservative in that form of saying you know what uh we have this but we don't need this technology let's go back to how it was beforehand so that's 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 good insight I was really fascinated uh, because I didn't actually read anything about this movie beforehand. I saw it was in the trailers, and that's all that I knew. And so to have M'Baku but not have him be the big villain threw me for a little bit because I was, you know, that's what I'm used to. That's what I've seen in other depictions of, of Black Panther. And I was like, wow, he's coming out right away, and he's beaten fairly easily. So I, I was a little surprised about that, and then I thought, Oh, Jesus, is that all that we're going to get of him? And then, of course, he comes back later, which is good, which is going to bring me to another thing that I want that I want to talk about later. But yeah, M'Baku, what I really liked about it was that he could so easily have been a one-note, you know, something that T'Challa just has to overcome to be become king. I've seen some depictions of him where he is just a very much uh, uh, an evil villain. I, I just want to make Wakanda isolationist and will do anything to make that happen and, and become ruler. And instead, what we got was a very interesting and honorable depiction of him and the fact that he does represent that conservative you know, faction of, or mindset, um, in a, in a film that's so political was kind of fascinating to me because what the message almost seems to me to be is that conservative thought is not the problem as long as you are honorable in the way that you deal with others. Yeah, yeah. He, he was, he was like an honorable Wakanda first. Right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. He, he was loyal opposition. That's right. how we would phrase it. Yes. Yeah. And so uh, I thought that that was kind of interesting because, you know, it would be so easy to have made him just a a one note evil villain and they didn't go that route. And so I really liked that 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 played on multiple levels. So if we does anyone want to talk about uh, Ross? I loved him. Okay. (laughs) He's it's good that we have Martin Freeman, even though there's still part of me that wishes that Michael J. Fox did not have his Parkinson's because I could easily see him eating up the scenery as the character he was based on. But Martin is just as good enough. He's more reserved and he's not flying off at the handle as his comic book counterpart in the um, Christopher Priest run because he's more, just like you guys were saying, he's very calculating. Many of the things that Ross does, he's learning, he's seeking, you know, and just like in my Facebook review, I said that he is a person who uses his instincts. He's able to sift through the veil 
and still be able to find out what's really going on. He's always constantly asking. He's constantly finding out new things. And what he's finding out with Wakanda is that it is not as restrictive of information as some would possibly think. I mean, when he is healed after saving Nakia in South Korea, when they implanted in his spine, you know, that device and he's able to walk, you know, Shuri, after making the colonizer remark, she starts showing him the technology and so forth. And so he's able to learn that so that when that important time comes when he actually has to get in, into that makeshift remote control ship to do battle, he's able to adapt because he was an Air Force pilot. So I love to see, you know, his growth through it as he gets to have the thought process earlier of, well, Wakanda, you know, the third world country, you know, textiles, all this other stuff, cool clothing, you know, just almost like flippant, like, yeah, just like any other, you know, backwards African, you know, nation or whatever. And then he comes here and then his eyes are opened. And that's what I love so much is that all these people, they don't start out the same way that they leave out. And very few films do that. And, and he never he never became the clown either, which exactly. I think was really great like he's the fish out of water he's been stepping you know he's getting made fun of but you never get the impression that he's an idiot you know he's competent you know he's yeah. smart and savvy and i think that makes it funnier that he knows immediately when he's misstepped and takes a step back you know and and lets them laugh at his expense basically because he's learning i thought it was it was a great portrayal yeah angie and i have to wonder if he took a lot of his experience even from when he played bilbo baggins Sure. Because right. if you look at Bilbo, Bilbo is pretty much the same kind of character from The Hobbit. Is that he's constantly learning, constantly adapting, but constantly he's out of his up. element. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he's always out of his element. But it's when he uses instinct that he's able to gain, you know. So I have to wonder if we just saw literally an MCU version of Bilbo. And that's another <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> One of the things that I thought was interesting was they say it at the beginning, but remembering at one point that he was CIA. And I was thinking like, well, you know, what kind of stuff would he have been involved in in the CIA? And he's not old enough to have really been involved with this. But I realized a, a really interesting parallel to, to the some of the, the politics going on in, in Black Panther is the whole thing about the CIA selling drugs in the inner cities to fund mm. their wars in, in Central America to overthrow dictators. And I thought that's really interesting to think about the way that they were playing both sides of that, that the CIA contributed so much to a lot of the pain and the, and, and the, the suffering that Killmonger went through in, you know, in his childhood and in that environment, while at the same time, you know, fighting for, you know, fighting for quote unquote freedom in another country. Yeah, and also you got to look uh, like, whereas Killmonger was in Oakland, you got to fast forward to, say, Harlem, New York, where Luke Cage is, and see how that also affected it. You know, and that's one of the things I love so much is that when all this is said and done, there's going to be a multiple chronology of the Marvel Cinematic Universe that starts from before and then after. And you get to see how all of these events play out. So you could easily infer where certain people possibly were. Now with Ross, Ross was Air Force. So Ross possibly, looking at his age, he's possibly like maybe in his 
fifties or so forth, you know, with the you know grayish hair, or whatever. You could literally go back to let's say the late eighties, early nineties, and so forth, and see that progression. Because also you also got to throw into this: who trained? Who really trained Killmonger when he was a seal? And what other type of operations? I mean, there could be a Nick Fury connection wow. with Killmonger. Ross know. recognized him on site. That's what I'm saying. So, yeah, yeah. There, there. He, I guess it's possible he was just going through files one day and it happened to stick there. <laughs> Either that, or or there were yeah. shared missions, Ryan. Yeah, yeah. Or I actually, if I were to really okay, if, if I want to fill in the the blanks here, it's possible that Ross was in. Uh, Busan to get Claw. It's possible he knew that Killmonger was an associate, and so studied up. That. Yeah, that's a good point. That's also possible too. Yeah. And so now, uh, moving. Uh, well, um, I guess. I guess actually, I shouldn't move over yet because I will give a shout out to Angela Bassett. Immortal? Is she immortal? She's immortal. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> She's immortal and majestic. And right. So uh, yeah, I mean, uh, playing the the mom, and it was good to have. You know more of the, of T'Challa's family around because we just saw the father in Civil War. Uh, we talked about Shuri already, but it was nice to have that familial connection. She played the role regally. You know, you bought that she was a queen, and so yeah, I mean that scene where T'Challa's coming off the plane the first time, and when she greets him and talking about how the father is with him. I mean, yeah, it's a scene we've seen before, but she plays it so well. The other thing that I appreciated about her character was when she offered the heart-shaped herb to Nakia. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. To Nakia. Yeah. Yeah. That was Nakia. Because she was basically saying, because she thought T'Challa was dead. And so she was offering it to her. And so I thought that was an interesting thing also. Of course, they didn't really do anything with it. But I just thought that that was interesting that just showing that, you know, in her mind, you know, that that didn't matter. You know, someone needs to do this. And so you, you know, you are the most likely candidate. You are, you know, capable. You, you know, take on this mantle now. And so I, I thought that was interesting. I do want to say two things to, to what you just said there, though, Nathan. First one is to the scene at the helipad, hover pad. I don't know what it's called. But what made that performance, that scene so powerful was how she was celebrating T'Challa becoming king. It isn't a sad moment for her. This isn't, oh, my husband is gone, your father is dead. It's a, we talked about this all the time. Literally, she's saying that we talked about, that her and her husband talked about him dying so that their son could become king. Mm -hmm. And when you think about that, they take something that is so morbid and made it beautiful in a way. Yeah. It goes back uh, to ways, yeah, yeah, I I love that. um, I love that idea, uh, Ray. Ryan, because it also goes back to when the child sees his father, and you know, in the spirit world, and he says about you know preparing, you you know my son for me to die, you know, talking yeah. about you know a father, you know who does not prepare their children for their absence, has failed as a father. That actually, I mean, there was a bunch of times in this film where I did get teary eyed. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. Because I, my father will be gone for like eight years in March. And so I took a lot of heart to that. Because for them in their culture, and he talked about this. T'Challa talked about this to Black Widow soon after his father was uh, murdered in um, Civil War. When he was, he was telling her about 
what his father believed and so forth in the plains and so forth. And he said, but I'm not my father. It's one thing to be taught that. It's another thing to experience it. So when he goes through the ritual of the heart shaper and is buried in the red sand and then comes you know, in contact with his father, he becomes a true believer of the two worlds. And so his father echoes what his mother pretty much said because, yes, she, she's always going to be sad that she lost her husband. But they knew that this was a possibility, but that the line would continue forward due to Chala. And so, you know, it's kind of bittersweet, but they would rather it be a good moment yeah, because he ascends to the kingship. Yeah, it's like there's there are only beginnings and not really so much endings. Exactly. In Wakanda. It's, it's a, a part it's of a life. Stepping off of, it's a stepping yeah. off point is what he said in Civil War. And there's a lot of callbacks in this movie to yeah. that. You know, so, yeah. I, I just also wanted to say real quick that it was interesting that Ramonda wanted to give the herb to Nakia and not Shuri, since by rights, Shuri would have been the heir being the princess and this uh, being the last one. It mm-hmm. makes me wonder if the monarchy has moved between families throughout through the leaders of the tribe, tribes throughout the history of Wakanda or not. There is a lot of people say that Black Panther is Shakespeare. I think it's more Game of Thrones. It's Game of Thrones the, and yeah. Godfather. It's Game yeah. of Thrones and Godfather. If Absolutely. You look at it. Yeah. And I would love to see the secret history of the Marvel Universe, of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, <laughs> and Wakanda's place in it. <laughs> yeah. There's also Wakabi to bring up. Oh, God. Which I, <laughs> which I have to say, of all the characters, was the one I think I cared for the least. <laughs> And the thing is, I've heard that there is like they they have four hours of material for this movie, and so the mm-hmm. lot had to get cut because first of all, I do not buy his relationship with with the general Okoye. Okoye, yeah, because they keep saying like my love, but they don't act like it at all. That's true. They're both married. They're both married. He's married to leading his tribe, and she's married to leading the uh, Dora Milaje. So you know their love is secondary. It's like she said. He, you, it was like he said, will you kill me? And she goes, for Wakanda? <laughs> Absolutely. Or, or uh-huh. I mean, she basically just said, hell yeah. I don't want to get too uh, specific as to what the relationship is, but let's just say as much, she's the one definitely wearing the pants in that relationship. <laughs> and also is definitely a, it's definitely a loose relationship in the sense of, it's not as, the way I read it, at least with the one viewing I saw, saw is that their relationship is definitely romantic, but it definitely has stipulations. You know, he, she can't easily cut the cord, which, you know, if necessary. Wakabi, I say, is the heart and soul of Wakanda. You wouldn't think he is, but he kind of is. He's the middle of the role character. He has his issues, but at the same time, he kind of represents the Wakanda on the rise of Wakanda in a state of change. Because if you look at him when he starts out, and I love the conversation he had with the child where he said, when they were talking about, you know, what would happen if we open up the border, you know, for Wakanda. And he says, well, you know, those who come into it will bring their own problems. Well, this film was made, you know, back in 2014, 2015 and so forth. It finally wrapped up like last year. They couldn't have known back then that we were going to get Trump. We were going to get the situation we got. But these types of thought processes have been with this country for a long time. We've had nativists 
movements. Every time I think about it, I think about the movie that Martin Scorsese did a while back called Gangs of New York. And we think that we have an issue now with our nativist movements of people saying, oh, we don't want these people here. Back before the Civil War, it was all over the place. You know, like, oh, uh, we don't just hate the Native Americans who were trying to kick off their lands. No, uh, Mexicans seek life elsewhere. Chinese seek life elsewhere. Blacks, stay in your place. Even Irish and Germans. I mean, if you go back far enough. Absolutely, Nathan. So this, the whole thing is pretty much eternal. So Wakabi is pretty much that Wakandan version of that. But also, he is a person, just like with some of them, who comes from a position of pain. His parents were killed by Kilma, by, uh, by claw. Ulysses Claw. And so he pretty much wants Ulysses Claw dealt with. And for decades, he's been waiting for it to happen. And we don't find out the real reason why Claw has been in exile as opposed to being captured until later in the film. We see part of that in the beginning. But yeah. the revelation itself makes a whole lot of sense of why Claw is at large. What I really liked about Wakabi's place in the movie is that it showed that there was already dissension among the people of Wakanda before Killmonger even came there because he was all set. He said, like, you give me the word, we'll go out, we'll conquer the rest of the world. You know, we'll clean it up for you. And you contrast that with Nakia, you know, and her attitude about helping other people. And you see that there's already this sort of tension between the isolationism, you know, and T'Challa is very much trying to respect, this is the way we've always done things. You know, he kind of doesn't agree with it. You can tell that in the eyes. It's another really good performance thing from, from Chadwick Boseman that he's not really certain of it, but he feels like he's kind of got to do it because that's the way. And that's all Don McGregor. And that's all Don McGregor there, back from the Jungle Action comics and the later graphic novels that he did. All of that was all based on his runs of the Black Panther. And he had a good, substantial, long run of the comics where you get a chance to see Wakandan civilization. And interesting thing is, is this. When I look at Nakia, I see three women in T'Challa's life in the comics. I see Magdalen. I see Nakia, the character who was introduced by Christopher Priest, who did not have as rosy of a relationship as she does in this film. Actually, it gets a lot of failed attraction in the Christopher Priest run. And then, of course, you got Storm. Uh, when I look at Nakia, I see three women that have been fused together to become, you know, kind of like a super Nakia, in a sense. <laughs> Which is why I don't have a problem if Storm and T'Challa never ever get together, because Nakia's his queen. And that's possibly another reason why his mother decided to give the heart-shaped earth to her because she is the not just the heart and soul but the spirit of what T'Challa wants but T'Challa is reserved because he's trying to still figure out he's still playing personal head games as to what he wants to do but in the comics his people have these different factions that he has to deal with all the time of no you are always going out adventures with the Avengers and doing this stuff come back home you know, home is what's important. And then, you you know, you have people who say, well, we should be doing more in the world. That's all Don McGregor's run. Right. But yeah, so we see that tension in the movie done really well, I think, where we have 
Nakia and, and her way of we need to go out, we got to help people. We've got sort of the idea of we have the technology, we can just go out and conquer people. And we've got the isolationist view, which is very real, as we can see looking around the world today, because we see those same attitudes, you know, playing out around us, which I think is one of the, the strengths of the film. I do think Wakabi was uh, necessary to the storyline to give uh, Killmonger an entrance into, well, frankly, into the throne room uh, and an ally. If if uh, Wakabi hadn't been there, if his father, if his parents hadn't been killed by Kalal, I think it would have been a lot shorter movie. Mm-hmm. Right. But I also think that's, if I were to nitpick this movie, which, you know, I can do, <laughs> the, the two biggest nitpicks I have, one of them is in Killmonger showing up with Claw right to Wakabi. I, I don't. It was never explained how he knew to bring Claw to Wakabi. How he knew right. that he'd gain an ally there. It That's was, probably uh, just, in the cut footage. Possibly. Or just I want that cut footage so much, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do agree that Wakabi and Nakia are, and again, again, because it's in every with every character in this movie, they display the different opposing philosophies because I, and I think you saw that with nakia with the child soldier that she saved yeah. with her introduction she was like no don't kill him he's a boy he had no choice in this as well she wants to save the world and wakabi's definition of going out into the world is send my warriors out there and we will you know bring wakanda mm-hmm. rule everywhere and so yeah it's just there again and it's all over the board but you can take probably any two characters in this movie and put them at odds philosophically with each other and t'challa sits in the center of that web mm-hmm which, you know, is the challenge of being a king, is weaving your way through all that. Mm-hmm. I, I do, before we talk about Killmonger, just want to talk about Claw for a minute. I thought Andy Serkis did a fantastic job. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, man, he was outstanding. I am angry. <laughs> Don't, hey, 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 as soon as we go through this, I'm going to let you have your say, Nathan, but I have, a, I have a way that they can bring him back. Okay. I am angry because if there's one thing, you cast Andy freaking Serkis in a role. That is, you, you figure, mocap and voice acting. So I thought for sure they're going to have him turned into the creature of living sound that we know from the comics, because then Andy Serkis can, you know, do mocap and voice uh-huh. acting. And I feel like it was such a waste to just have him shot dead, you know, I get why narratively, but, I, you know, like, because of what Killmonger's plan is and he had to get in good with Wakati, yeah. you know, why they went that way, I still feel like they could have just had him, like, knocked out and just dragged in front of Wakabi, and that would have satisfied him because then he could start torturing Claw or whatever he wanted to do, but I'm upset because especially because Andy Serkis, you know, in, in Age of Ultron, <laughs> he, he was just kind of there, right? But in this, the relishing, the oh, you know, yeah. of, of all the things that he was doing, the jokes of, you know, talking about his band and stuff, or <laughs> yeah. when he tells the one guard, oh, you're fine, you can go. Yeah. <laughs> and then he shoots <laughs> <laughs> And then he explains it, to, you know, to Killmonger, we gotta spread it out, you know, you can't be in a, you know. Yeah. Right, yeah, because it looks like you're amateurs, yeah. He was in his element. Right. See, that, he could have been... Killmonger was the villain without a doubt, but if, and I don't agree that MCU has a villain problem, but if it did, this movie had two great ones, Right, and Claw was, it was necessary, but yeah, I agree, it would have been, he just chewed up every scene he was in. Yes, well, and they did. actually gave him the the sonic gun arm in a way that actually yeah. was somewhat bleak, because, you know, I keep imagining in the MCU that big, like, megaphone-looking thing that he has in the comics, <laughs> and I'm like, that wouldn't work, and so I thought we'd never see it, but they actually gave him something that was somewhat believable of the thing hidden in a fake arm. 
that could come out and, and shoot. And I was like, that's perfect. That's so brilliant of a way to, to do something close to the comics, but not, mm-hmm. you know, exactly the same. And yeah, I'm really disappointed about the death of Claw. That, that upset, especially with the Fantastic Four, most likely coming into the MCU very soon. Or I say very soon, but within three or four years. I, I would have loved to have had Claw there as a, as a villain for them. Well, never say never. Well, no, I know. Because like I said, that, the reason why I said it is because of that arm. And he said that that arm had vibranium in it. And that's the reason why I was able to do what it did. Now, we don't know what happened to Claw's corpse. Right. I doubt very highly it was just dumped someplace or whatever. If I were to gather, and like I said, I want that four-hour cut. I don't, I don't care how much I got to pay for it. <laughs> I want that cut. <laughs> because nice to want things. It really is. It really is. Jennifer. I'm thinking of the scene from Fanboys where they go to William Shatner and he's like, I'm William Shatner. I can score anything. Exactly. But, uh, <laughs> but I want the cut because my own instinct, my own suspicion is this. I think that his corpse is lying on a slab in Shuri's personal lap. And I think that's how he's going to come back. I think that arm itself is going to allow him to come back. I think that we and come on, you don't bring in any circus and not say, oh, well, you know what? This guy is a genius with motion capture. Why don't we just do something with him later? Because he's only been in two films. Right. And like I said, his role in Age of Ultron was very small. I mean, I think you're missing the, the much easier way to bring him back. We, from by all accounts in the, in the trailers, it looks like a good portion of Infinity War takes place in Wakanda. So, mm-hmm. depending how far along Thanos is with collecting the gems, or even with just freaking Cree blood or whatever, uh, <laughs> he could come back. <laughs> yeah, he could. He could. Tahiti. Uh, he could. <laughs> yeah, Tahiti. <laughs> <laughs> it's a magical place. No one. But but Claw's gonna be back, guys, I, and, and I bet really that he will be back. Um, just like I have a feeling that down the road, Killmonger himself, because these are guys who die and come back all the time in the comics. Yeah, but I don't want them to go down that route because that's what got me to stop reading comics was uh, the no. lack of consequence. I really don't want them to bring Killmonger back because I, that was that was yeah. that that would undermine so much of the drama and and the I, pathos I agree. and the meaning of this movie. So I agree, I Jennifer. Can I, oh, just for one second, because sure. I've been thinking about this so much. At, at, when I watched the film the first time, I thought that. I thought, oh, it's so it's too bad that he's dead because he was just a wonderful villain. But I've been thinking about it, and I think it wouldn't cheapen it if they were to bring him back because of his last words where he's talking about, oh, you're going to put me in a cage, I'd rather be dead, basically. But to, to me, that's such a political statement that bringing him back would work because he's so westernized and he's so hurt and angry that he would look at imprisonment as punitive because that's what it is in this country. And so to have them demonstrate that in Wakanda, you know, that's not the purpose of imprisoning somebody. That's not, you know, you're not there as a punitive damage. You're there to be rehabilitated. And I, and I think the ending sequence with Bucky kind of drives that home mm-hmm. that if the point is not putting you in a cage, if the point is helping you and, 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 you know, healing you, then you could bring him back. Um, and he could either go on to continue to be a villain or maybe get partially redeemed or rede- whatever. But I, I think that you could bring him back without cheapening his death here. And also, he has been the Black Panther in the past in the comics. And, and of course, they showed that as the gold jaguar, which, 
like I said, when we get into the designs of the suits, I have a few bones to pick <laughs> because... Well, you might as well mention it now, Lucas, because we're running pretty long now. Okay, first off is this. The reason why I said earlier about the suits and so forth is this. I came to see Black Panther. I didn't come to see Purple Panther. <laughs> that has to be dialed down. Like, for instance, if we're to see Purple again, it should be like when he's in like the dark. Mm. He could still do all that kinetic energy stuff, and it would be similar to what he did to Barton's arrows in Civil War. But instead, imagine that energy not just um, dropping, but being redistributed back to Hawkeye. Think about that. But it, it would be almost like you have the Panther using almost like force-like abilities. But you don't actually get the chance to actually see that purple energy. And I know they do that for the Flash and, you know, for the CDI, but that was getting too much. And the same thing even for Killmonger suit, because I hate to say it, it was starting to look like Spider-Man 3 <laughs> in the last uh, scene between um, Killmonger and T'Challa. I have to say... I I didn't need the super technological Black Panther suit. I mean, we're getting to a point now with Spider-Man having a technological suit and Black Panther having a technological suit that it's like there's almost no point to have Iron Man because everybody's having, you know, going to get a technological suit. So I would have been fine with him just having the costume he had in Civil War. It wasn't a huge deal for me, but I did kind of think that, you know, it was it was entirely unnecessary for who Black Panther is to have, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Now, now, now I will I will ask this question. You know, this is the elephant in the room. What did you guys think about T'Chaka and um, his brother and mm. how everything pretty much built up to this point, you know, to show why Killmonger became Killmonger? I want to step in on this one just really quick because it speaks to one of the things that I really wanted to talk about. I call this movie a slow burn because mm. in the beginning, I had no idea, you know, what was going on there in that opening scene or, or what it was really all supposed to mean. In a lot of the beginning, I was kind of like, yeah, I mean, you know, there's some neat action stuff, but I'm not sure why I really care. This was a movie that was so economical, you know, I mean, every, and I guess that's because it started as a four hour movie that got cut down, but it seems like every scene was important and needed to be where it was. And I was really impressed at the end of the day, especially when you get to that final fight at how invested I, because in the beginning of the movie, like I say, I wasn't all that invested. And by the end of the movie, it was almost like gripping my, my seat, you know, my armrest, you know, uh, you know, tension to want to see how this all played out. And, and I'm only bringing that up in the sense, the context of what happened with the brother, because that's the important reveal. It's the, it's the twist in the movie when you find out exactly what happened there, you know, and how Killmonger is actually T'Challa's cousin. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I, I thought that that was really brilliantly done. It gave him a reason to have self-doubt because if he's from this line and if his father was the kind of person that, you know, was a different person than what he thought he was, I understood the confusion, the sort of loss of faith in the, in the father. And so, yeah, I, I thought that that was really well done. They didn't play it up as much as I think they could have, but then again, maybe it would have added another hour to it. Right. But you got the sense, or at least I got the sense, that T'Challa lost the first battle 
with Killmonger because he was ridden with doubt. He was ridden with this belief that his father had failed, and did that mean he was a failure as well? And basically, T'Challa went into that combat, to that challenge, already defeated. He defeated himself. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until he had he went to the ancestral plane again and confronted his father and found his own place and his own definition as king that he was able to stand up and to defeat Killmonger again. Mm-hmm. Very good. So we've talked around Killmonger a lot. We've mentioned him a lot. He's part of the Mar MCU redeeming Fox act that also did so well for Chris Evans. <laughs> <laughs> And that they have to take Human Torch actors and make them much better characters in the MCU. But uh, who wants to talk about Killmonger? I loved Killmonger because he was right and it was uncomfortable. And I, I loved I, I He's probably my favorite villain that I can think of at this point in my life. He, His motivations are so clear and so sympathetic. And he just goes over whatever like internal line we have as humans about how we should treat other humans, he just goes over it so easily that it's scary because you can tell where he's coming from and why he's coming, why why he's approaching it the way he is. And you kind of are forced to confront the fact that, well, is this line arbitrary? Like what, where, where is the step over that makes him the villain really? And it is uncomfortable. And I, and I, you know, I don't think I fully unpacked it yet. But just in terms of just everything about his performance, I thought was so, so great and so thought provoking. And Michael B. Jordan did such a great job and played so well off topic Bozeman in their, you know, scenes together. Really, his scenes with everybody. But that moment where he shot his girlfriend was so shocking. And, yeah. but it was. You almost forget it. I mean, really, when he talks about why he's doing what he's doing and he has such conviction and like faith in himself, you almost start to forget that he did that thing. And I kept coming back to it during the movie, like, yeah, man, that's rough. Oh, but he totally, like, he's the villain for <laughs> sure. But <laughs> you can disagree that Marvel has a villain problem. I think they do, but this villain is was wonderfully done. People keep mentioning that he was right. I mean, he was right in identifying a problem with the world. Yes. His methods were completely wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Agreed, Nathan. Agreed. Uh, um, Jed, do you want to say anything about Killmonger? Yeah, I mean, I agree with, with what's been said. I think that, that Killmonger, part of part of the whole Killmonger was right thing is the fact that, that his father was murdered, mm-hmm. basically. And there was never any justice for that. So, you know, and his father was murdered. He, you know, grew up without having access to his heritage. He grew up, you know, in a not good area of the city compared to the the people living in this technological paradise in Africa. And so he has... It's it's not just that you know a good villain you can you can understand why they feel the way that they do, but but he was I mean I, I completely understand why why he felt the way that he did and yes absolutely the 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 fact that he's you know basically advocating for global race war that's not good obviously <laughs> but. You know, he's and, and and he even makes a point and it's it's just kind of in, in passing, but the fact that what has what has Wakanda been doing this whole time? They've they've sat back and watched as African people have, have gotten enslaved all over the world and been treated terribly, and they've just sat back there doing nothing. 
And, you know, in what way does that make them any better than, you know, colonizers? So I, I thought I thought he he really had the moral high ground until he said, so let's do global race war because that's that's the way it is. Yeah, which which, of course, would just create a perpetual cycle of violence, which wouldn't help right. anyone, because eventually the people that they're fighting would get hold of some of those weapons they're bringing over. Yeah. And then that it would just up the ante and have, yeah. you know, the whole world would burn, basically. Exactly, Nathan. So he was very compelling, but what you guys have said is pretty much my issue with his character. Like I said, I felt his anguish. I felt, you know, his resentment. But also I understood that he was needed because T'Challa, and it's interesting, in the comics, Killmonger is his rival. People tend to think his claw is T'Challa's rival. He's not. He's the person who caused T'Challa to become the Black Panther, yes. And thankfully, with the help of the Fantastic Four, he was able to defeat Claw. But Killmonger presents another view of doing things within Wakanda and the world. Something counter to everything that T'Challa stands for. And it was interesting that Nate Moore, Ryan Coogler, and another screenwriter whose name, you know, I can't remember at the time. These three, they were able to do masterfully to say, not only is Killmonger completely and totally opposite of what T'Challa's viewpoint, world viewpoint is, but they're also related, you know? There's a family bond, because in the comics, T'Challa gets defeated by Killmonger, and Killmonger becomes Black Panther, but Killmonger's not able to take the heart-shaped herb because he is not of the bloodline. He has to take a synthetic version so that he's able to have similar abilities to what a natural Black Panther has. So to merge them together and to say, you know what, we're going to take elements of that, but we're going to just take out the synthetic hardship herb and that he's not part of the family. Yeah, let's bring Killmonger in. You see literally a Game of Thrones scenario here. of, And that's another reason why I love the final fight, because it wasn't just the fight between T'Challa and Killmonger. It was the fight between the tribes who had differing viewpoints, those who side with Killmonger and those who stayed true to T'Chaka and T'Challa and said, we're going to actually fight this out. And it was really like a big family fight yeah. that had lasting political consequences. And that's one of the reasons why I love Killmonger is because T'Challa, as he goes on with these movies, and there will be many movies, I believe, with Chad with Bozeman as T'Challa, Black Panther, he's going to get more adversaries that's going to cause him to grow as this hero. But it was important to start him out with Killmonger. Yeah. Very important. Well, you look at the word that they used when they talked about what happened to Killmonger's father, and they'd say that he was radicalized. And that, mm -hmm. I mean, speaking to Angie's point, that makes you take a hard look at the way that we see the world when we think of people being radicalized coming to America. You know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, living in, in the kind of situation that he was living in and whatnot and how that makes you view people in other countries when we talk about those people being radicalized. And, you know, again, it's, it's one of those very interesting, you know, parts of the movie that it takes makes you take a hard look at the world as it is right now and make you understand why people do start taking a mindset that human life is completely meaningless. I mean, that's the thing when he goes into the, the afterlife and sees his father and he's like, are you not going to shed a tear for me? And he's like, no, nah, life doesn't mean anything around here 
and the jo- and that interesting, scene. yeah, the old, it, it, yeah, th- those two scenes between the two scenes, one with T'Challa and T'Chaka, and the other scene with Killmonger and Najabu, his father, are like polar opposites. But each one is so important because they inform what's going to happen. Because it, it, like, you're right, Nathan, when you're saying this is a slow burn, a very well timed slow burn, because. They they are the heirs to their father's, you know, decision on that night, you know, really, they really are. And what you see is the legacy of fathers on um, play out. Now, when the job radicalized, absolutely. Big heart, absolutely. Because you got to think about that. The night that he died, the night he was murdered by his brother in a family squabble to defend, you know, Zuri, who we haven't even talked about. Forrest Whitaker's character yet, and uh, we're going to have to possibly do that at another time. It was happening around the same time as the Rodney King riots, and so that's the reason why they said it in 1992 in Oakland, because if L.A. was catching help, was catching problems, then you know that Oakland was not that far off. And so he's watching this and saying, they're mur- they're, you know, police brutality, people are being assassinated, something has to be done. So Najabu's heart was in the right place, but you're talking to your brother, who's not only your sibling, but he is the leader of your nation. He is the king. And for him, other than protecting you, he has to also protect the realm of Wakanda. And so Wakanda knew about all this stuff, but they still unfortunately decided to stay quiet because uh, that has been their policy for generations, for centuries. And so, whereas his father was able to allow things to continue like they were, even though I have a feeling that there has been some interactions with the West or Captain America never would have gotten his shield, it was almost like no different than certain countries not being able to do exports and certain economic you know, deals with other countries because of how stringent their policies are. And so, that's the magic of this whole movie is that at the end, when you see the child say, we're going to open ourselves up to the world and we're going to have an outreach center. And he buys the building where his cousin grew up. He buys, you know, not just that building, but other buildings so he can have his outreach center. And then he goes before the UN to give that talk. That shows that Wakanda is making a turn for the better. But I, I said this earlier on another podcast is that with them going and becoming open, they also open themselves up to people who are trying to come in to destabilize Wakanda. And I think that that will also be an interesting set of stories as, you know, his character continues to progress is there will be other oncomers who say, oh, we now want to do business with Wakanda. But what type of business are you trying to do? And now, if anyone, that's also going to be interesting because we don't know what Wakanda will look like after, you know, Infinity War. That's going to be interesting. I don't know what any country would have to offer Wakanda. (laughs) (laughs) So, Ryan, is there anything that you wanted to add to what we've been saying about Killmonger? I'm going to push back a little bit on, on all this. Yeah, yeah, I agree with Angie that he was right, at least about, and with you, Nathan, that he was right about the problem problems, but not the solution. And where I think uh, Lucas pointed out that Ninjabu, his heart was in the right place. Killmonger's isn't. 
Killmonger, I, I saw the movie the first time, and I came out thinking Killmonger was like Magneto. You know, he's the ends justify the means. But then, so I, I got the broad strokes of the first viewing, and then I watched it a second time, and I paid more attention to the dialogue, and I heard Killmonger talk about how each brand, each person, each brand was a person that he killed in Afghanistan and Iraq and Africa, his you know, his home, ancestral homeland, all so that he could get to that place to kill T'Challa. And I heard how he was saying that he was going to put everyone in the ground who helped T'Challa. And he, like we mentioned, he killed his girlfriend. And this was vengeance. This was pure vengeance for him. Yeah, maybe he would do, quote unquote, do some good things in the process by changing the world. But it wasn't about justice for him. It wasn't about righting a wrong. It was about making sure that T'Challa and hurt as much as he hurt. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's why I, when, when people talk about how he's this noble character, I keep looking at it and going, I didn't see that yeah. at all. He was not a noble character. He was a guy that, yeah, I mean, he wanted to cause pain to others. Where, I agree with you, I think the father, from what little we see of him, I think the father was more like a Nakia-type character, but just one that stopped listening to what the throne was telling him but he was trying to save the world with what he could do yeah and was starting to slip down a slippery slope of justifying things like helping clog vibranium and stuff like that but you know he was trying to do good whereas i think yeah killmonger was just trying to cause pain to clarify i was trying to i was trying to be short with my comment (laughs) when i say he was right i meant in terms of when he aired his grievances those grievances had merit oh yes it's not like he was taking something out of context and blowing it out of proportion or misreading something. He was absolutely right that, that Wakanda backed off and didn't help people in need. Right. Now, what he did with that information is not heroic. But to me, the more interesting thing is where, where was that line? Like, when did he go over the line? When did that wanting to right that wrong turn into just wanting to make everything hurt? But th- I think that's my point. I don't know that he ever wanted to right that wrong. I think he was just on a personal quest to become king, to hurt T'Challa, and to hurt everyone who had hurt him and anyone who mattered to him. Uh, like I said, I think it was vengeance, not justice. Yeah. He still he he might be smart, but he is still that little boy who found his father, you know, oh, on yeah. the floor dying. Yeah. Like you said, he's full. Well, of Well, and let me say this though: the fact that they didn't take the kid with them just to preserve, like a. You know, how many missing kids are there in the United States every year? If they had taken the kid, it wouldn't have exposed Wakanda to the world, right? But that was the excuse that they gave for the king not wanting to deal with the fact that he had killed his brother. So he left his brother's Uh kid there to grow up in a bad situation. It's funny. I just, I'm going to make this very quick. I see a damn, sorry for language, but I see a damn if you do, damn if you don't scenario with that. Because even if T'Chaka had taken Eric with him, this was still going to play out. Because, you know, you killed my dad, you know. That's, that's how I look at it. There's no explanation that you can give a kid or anybody, especially, you know, if you loved your parent as much as Eric loved his father in the job of, that would explain why T'Chaka killed, you know. So you would just have somebody simmering inside the kingdom of Wakanda as opposed to what he did. Either way, this conflict was gonna happen, is what I'm I saying. Don't I don't I don't know. And I you know, when he saw his dad and his dad is you know, realizing that he kind of failed his son and says, I should have taken you to Wakanda sooner, 
I think he's acknowledging that the pain and the hurt and anger and that he saw and felt and wanted to alleviate is all his son is now mm. because his son didn't have Wakanda. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, like, it's like, it's like Angie was saying earlier about if they ever decided to bring Killmonger back, it's about rehabilitation. And mm. I think, yeah, Killmonger, we, he wouldn't, we would be calling him Eric or whatever his Wakanda name. I can't remember his Wakanda name. I think it was We'd like be, Ndaka or something. Yeah, like yeah. We would be calling him that because yeah, maybe he would have challenged uh, T'Challa for the throne, but he wouldn't have been like, hey, let's invade the rest of the world. Let's uh, use the war dogs to overthrow foreign government. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I don't think it would have been quite as uh, much apocalypse. And I do need to say now, uh, it, <laughs> we do need to wrap up fairly soon, but there's two things that I wanted to talk about uh, really quick before we go out. One is the fact that I feel somewhat cheated by marvel and the reason why i say that is that there was such a huge build-up to civil war and i feel like they have dropped the ball since civil war happened in that there seems to have been no real consequence of that movie and the events in it you know i talked about it with spider-man homecoming i'm gonna bring it up again here black panther goes into south korea pretty much tears up one of their cities (laughs) and that's the whole thing the sokovia accords was supposed to take care of was that sort of situation but we don't hear anyone talking to him about how he's in violation of the accords we don't hear anything about any kind of action taken against wakanda by the international community it's like the writers forgot that the whole sokovia accords thing happened Either that or the CIA covered it up. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Well, except there's pictures on people's phones all over. I mean, they can't get rid of all of that. Uh, You never know, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't buy that. But anyway, either way, the fact of the matter is Marvel isn't really doing anything about that. And it makes it cheapen Civil War to me that there's no lasting concept. I figured every time we had an Earthbound movie, there was going to be more about that and it feels like now in affinity war you know it's all going to go away somehow they're going to wave their hands and be like oh we're going to scrap the sokovia accord so the avengers can get together again and everything's going to be happy and i just would have liked some 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 interplay before that happened instead of just like you know there was really nothing more from it and we just move on again maybe it was in the hour and a half that got cut, it's true but in in fairness they left busan immediately they didn't continue chasing Claw. I mean, he got away in a van. They chased him across half the city before, but they let him go then. Maybe that's because they knew they had to leave before. Maybe the Avengers were on their way, or, or, the, spe- or the other Ross and his special task force, or something like that. It, it could very well be that the Sokovia Accords has actually aided Claw getting away because T'Challa and company had to get out of the country as fast as possible. That's a good point, Ryan. Okay. Also, they're they're rich, right? <laughs> I mean, if, all, if, if they paid for all the property yeah. damage, how much complaining do you oh, think that's fair enough. gonna do? And for that matter, <laughs> diplomatic immunity—he's a king. Exactly. You know? Well, there could still be sanctions against the country and international, you know, stuff going on because of that. Because they think it's a third world country. Where are they going to sanction? Uh, well, them it's <laughs> true, but either way, you know, there there should have been some sort of outcry. So, but Angie makes a good point about paying for the damages and whatnot. But 
You know, especially with how big of a deal it seemed in Civil War that people just didn't like enhanced individuals, you know, causing destruction. There's probably loss of life going on, too. I mean, we're not even mentioning that. I mean, with all the cars blowing up and the streets torn up, somebody died. I know that a bunch of mercenaries possibly saw being all the other side. Well, when that got a spear through him, definitely. (laughs) I feel like as much as Tony and the the crew feel like they're the the only important people in the world, that's not actually true. And as much as as they think that that everything that they do is, you know, touches everything, it doesn't because I mean, even even though T'Challa was there for the things that happened in Civil War, that was very much a relationship of convenience. That was he wanted to get the guy who killed his father and okay, Tony and the, these other people seem to be also wanting to do that. So sure, we'll team up for now. But he did he did not seem to care at all about the Sokovia Accords or anything because they were a hundred percent isolationist at that point. And they felt like, you know, what was going on in South Korea in the, in the whole casino scene, there was a representative of the American government there, and they're like, well, we'll just have to work around him, you know? So I don't, I think that they very much felt like, well, this, this is their war. This is, this is not something that really impacts us. I think that now that they are stepping into the world and are opening up a little bit and are, are <laughs> dropping the Wakanda first thing, I think that they're going to have to make a decision as to where they fall on that. On the other hand, with Infinity War coming, I really don't think anyone's going to turn down help from superheroes right now. So there's that, and the other thing that I wanted to talk about is the ending. The uh, not, not the not the Bucky scene, although we can mention that too. The mid-credits uh, scene where T'Challa gives his speech. And Lucas talked about it a little bit, but the point that I wanted to make about it is... It was important for the message of the movie. I do wonder about this idea of Wakanda opening up its technology to the world, because one of the core things about Marvel comics, to me, has always been that Marvel, unlike DC, is in the quote-unquote real world. You know, even with all the stuff going on with superheroes and whatnot, the technology never gets out. Stark makes sure nobody gets a hold of any of his stuff. There, When it did happen, he made sure he collected it all and brought it back, you know. They make sure that the politics in the real world is what's going on in the comics world, all of that. And so, if they really do open up Wakandan tech, how soon before the movies get so far removed from our world that it's like watching, you know, Star Trek or something? And so I'm a little concerned about it. And I just kind of wanted thoughts about what you guys feel that that has to do to the MCU moving forward. There are a number of ways that they can they can address that. First of all, I, I think that I think that they're not going to just <laughs> break the prime directive and, you know, completely, you know, accelerate our technology by like, you know, leaps and bounds. I think they'll look at, you know, what is a problem that people are having? Oh, well, we just discovered something that can do this or or whatever. I think that they'll roll it out slowly to the general public. However, I think they will definitely give probably whatever they've got to, I don't even necessarily want to call it S.H.I.E.L.D., but, you know, the good guys, the good guy superheroes. You know, I, so I think that I think that without that level of technology, it would be very hard for them to really stand up to the the level of power that Thanos is going to be bringing. 
and there's a number of ways to deal with that. It could be that following the, the second Infinity War movie, maybe Wakanda will be reduced to a crater. Who knows? You know, maybe all of the vibranium in the world will evaporate. I, I think that... I mean, I, I can definitely see how they could completely break the technological you know, sort of balance of power, but I don't think they necessarily will. I tend to think that they started veering away from that after Age of Ultron. When you have the entire country of Sokovia go up into the air and then disintegrate, and you're having all these accords about, you know, superheroes or vigilantes being able to operate, that kind of changes the geopolitics of things. Yes, it's similar, but the road has been there. I mean, these are guys who've already seen an alien invasion in the first Avenger film. These are guys who've seen pretty much uh, Marvel's version of the Terminator in Skynet, walk among us and do damage. And so I think as the movies continue to go forward it's going to continue to get more outlandish unfortunately however i do see i do see opportunities as far as we're taking elements of our real world like saying individuals such as like elon musk and tesla and other things and using that as templates to show what exactly can be done in the marvel cinematic universe to, to have some level of reality but now that we have wakanda that's opening up itself we might very well, in the next few films, see hover cars that will not exist in our world, but it will exist in theirs. Yeah. And they'll have to show, you know, new sets of laws and so forth, and, you know, and what have you. Look, I think Wakanda wants to open itself up, and it's going to hit a lot of diplomats and lawyers and countries that don't want other countries having access to the te technology. And I think it's going to be a really hard awakening for T'Challa that they have all this tech they want to share, and it might be harder to actually share than they think it is. That's, that's possible. possible, too. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But I would just tend to think of it as, well, again, we don't know what's going to happen in Infinity War. Mm -hmm. But they can share all the schematics that they want. If they don't give an ounce of vibranium, it doesn't make a difference. Mm -hmm. You need that. And they're going to, for if for no other reason, just because T'Challa wants to help the rest of the world, that doesn't mean he's just going to give them vibranium, you know, free and clear. It's going to be well regulated, and mm -hmm. first, and and the pro you would probably have to justify your need for it. I could see him saying hospitals, medical technology, we will give vibranium to support that, but he's not. You're not going to see cars flying around because just, well, just because as as arrogant as it may sound, sound T'Challa is aware that. The rest of the world would go bonkers if if he did that too too much too soon would never work. It's kind of the same way Stark's technology if, from his from Jarvis to Friday to to just the little things is already out in the rest of the world anyway. He's managed to keep a hold of it, even though in Iron Man two he said that the government that any other company was only ten years away from producing a suit still hasn't really happened yet. But it's the same thing with the tech of Wakanda. It's just. Even even if he did throw it all out there, even if he did say, here's a vibranium, I'm going to give X amount to each country and limited resources, use it how you will. It's just not going to be like everyone's cell phone suddenly can do holograms. <laughs> right. And you also got to think about impounds as far as where exports and people be able to test out that, you know, that type of uh, mineral and stuff like that. So you got quarantine and everything. So I see you guys at this point. It won't be as open-ended as it appears. 
Yeah, I mean, the two things that I wanted to mention uh, about it, I mean, teeing off of what you guys were saying, is that, yeah, I what I want to see, because this movie presented it as a unilaterally good thing, but th- there are two issues that I have with it, and I hope that they bring that up in a second uh, movie, is that, one, no matter whether or not you think that this is all for good uses or whatever, and you try to make it just medical technology, someone's going to figure out a way to weaponize it. Sure. You know? I mean, oh, that's, the, that's the way that people are, right? Yeah. And, well, and this is why, I, I, I and I'm going to make this very quick, this is why I hope that they bring in the son of uh, Obadiah Stane, Ezekiel mm-hmm. Stane. Because he's pretty much, and the only other analogy I can make is that he's like Marvel's version of Lex Luthor. Um, he's a corporate raider, and he likes to destabilize other nations to open up markets into other nations and make them, you know, more profitable. And I could easily see him with the, you know, because he's just as much as a genius as his dad was, being able to see, you know, Wakandan vibranium and say, well, how can I use this? Yes, this might be being used for medical, but maybe I can make it for military you know, use yeah. or what happened. Right, because even if it's something like an unlimited power source, well, the military can use that, you know? I mean, there's yeah. some way to weaponize just to, about any technology exactly. you can come up with. Claw's arm cannon was a mining tool. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, and if it's something like the internet, they're just going to use it all for porn. <laughs> <laughs> The other thing that I wanted to mention, though, is, is you know, Wakanda's at least 100 years beyond the rest of the world, as it was depicted in this movie. There's also the rate of technical advancement issue, where I think that if, you know, they open up all this technology, there's going to be a huge issue. I mean, it kind of feeds into the other one, but with people being able to use it properly and with it sort of destabilizing governments, when all of a sudden, like, structures that are built around the scarcity of certain items, you know, just instantly go away, you know, that that can cause, you know, economic collapses and things like that. So there's a there's a huge issue here that I hope that they're nuanced enough to handle moving forward from this, because while I get the message that they were trying to do that, you know, countries need to step up, that, you know, those who have need to help those who have not, you know. It's sad that we need a movie to tell us that, but, you know, well, looking around the it, world. <laughs> it's like you say, if, if we say Wakanda's 100 years ahead of us, T'Challa said that they were going to help out. He didn't say to what degree. That is, he might present a Wakanda that's 10 years ahead uh, mm-hmm. to the rest of the world. So, yeah, uh, yeah, he doesn't want to destroy the world by trying to help it <laughs> or trying to save it. Yeah. Now that you bring this up, I would actually love to see it come up in uh, Luke Cage. Oh, I would love to see it too. Oh, I would love just to see a uh, team up between Black Panther and Luke Cage, like, immediately. (laughs) Just have him, you know, because he could literally set up his embassy in Harlem, and you know, all of a sudden, there's, you know, Luke Cage, and he realizes, oh, there's a guy who doesn't need Vibranium to protect himself, you know, from being shot at. His skin is naturally, you know, resistant to it. And just to see that comment, you know, and that's the one thing I hate is the division between the TV and the film. It it would be so easy, guys, to bring in these guys into like the Netflix or Netflix into the movies if they really had good stories that didn't take away from the overall narrative. Yeah, because I'd like to see Spider-Man. I would like to see Spider-Man hanging out with Daredevil, and I'd love to see Vince D'Onofrio as a more major player in the films. You know, that would be so so awesome. I mean, because as the Kingpin, he could be in a lot of different movies. I mean, it's not just Spider-Man, although that's the most uh, logical one. 
Kingpin and his interests are global. And he yeah. comes up against super unlikely superheroes sometimes because they are interfering with his business. I mean, he could re- restart Hydra as a corporate, you know, because he was head of Hydra in the comics in the 80s. I mean, the things that they could do if they just could just have good, you know, synergy between the TV and the film divisions, it would just be, I mean, it would be win-win. We would literally have a world of Wakanda either on Netflix or on this Disney streaming service immediately, you know, if they wasn't this, this thing. And you're right. I do fault, you know, I promote, but I also fault, you know, Kevin, because they just need to just get over off their high horses and say, okay, what can we do to actually assist each other? Because it's all about making money. Right. It's all about, you know, getting good stories, but it's about making money. is isn't about, you know, who's got the better, you know, kingdom or whatever. And that's the thing. They've literally set themselves up as kings. And whereas I find myself on Kevin's side, I see that if you were to actually do a partnership, the fans are already going to pay for it. They've shown them with this movie. So whatever beef you guys have got, just squash it. Well, the problem, I think, is that they're both making so much money that there's really no incentive. You know, you're basically saying you could make even more money, you know, but they're probably <laughs> like, well, we're making enough now, so it's not really yeah. that necessary. I don't know if that's true. Would anyone show up? Would anyone show up for a Luke Cage, Black Panther, or a crossover who wouldn't show up just to a regular Luke Cage or a regular Black Panther movie, anyways? I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe. But I think having the street level defenders gives a, a really interesting opportunity that the movies don't really have time for to yes. look at trickle down effects of something like Wakanda opening up to the or world. even the even the Sokovia Accords. Yeah. yeah. Because they would definitely talk more about that, because that's definitely what uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is doing. They always throw out the Sokovia Accords, because apparently they're the only ones who kept, you know, <laughs> kept that as part of their narrative. Right. Well, that's the thing, because you know, the first seasons of the Netflix shows were clearly set, time-wise, very soon after the first Avengers movie, because they kept on Absolutely. talking about the New York event. I'm hoping that this next wave of Netflix series jumps forward to after the Sokovia Accords and we deal with that. It's my own pipe dream. They've said nothing about this, but I'm just hoping that that's part of the narrative in this second wave of Netflix shows, and we'll see if that happens. Totally off topic, but there was, what was it? In Daredevil Season 2, they did reference Avengers 2, so we know at least it happened after Age of Ultron. Well, in a sense, they reference the fact, again, way off on a tangent, but when Karen had to look up an old newspaper that she couldn't find, she had to find a hard copy because the internet, the online version had been destroyed when Ultron went into the internet. Oh, okay. I'd forgotten about that. That's but, right, yeah. Ross. <laughs> All right. And that's my useless piece of knowledge for today. <laughs> that's some good knowledge, bro. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I think now, even though there's so much more we could say about this movie, we're only going to each have one more thing that we can talk about here uh, before we say our, our goodbyes. So, Ryan, is there anything more that you wanted to say about Black Panther before we cut out today? Not any really in-depth conversation, but I, <laughs> my other big nitpick, I'm going to point that out, <laughs> is that rivers don't flow into mountains right uh that's not the way that works <laughs> that really bugged me well no but they didn't say that he washed into the mountain they said one of their fishermen so he they could have been down yeah he could have been down at the foot of the mountain you don't know the the jaboy tribes <laughs> lands go all the way there they start in the mountains and then they also are down 
downriver. Uh, no, no, Nathan, no. <laughs> well, it doesn't. Look, there, there. He could have been fishing in the other lands and just not told anybody. You know, it's not sure. Yeah, why not? It wasn't enough for me to go. This is the worst movie ever. Right. Okay. <laughs> That's how I rationalized it. Yeah, fair enough. I do that all the time. But just one other little Easter egg or observation I wanted to make is. Uh, who was it that was talking to Killmonger at the time? I think it's Wakabi was saying that the war dogs in London, Hong Kong, and New York were ready to go. I thought that was interesting because those are the three cities that have uh, that are protecting the Earth from mystical attacks. That's right. Where the, where the house is from, Doctor Strange. Right. Well, not London anymore. <laughs> well, I'm assuming they've since replaced. It, you know? you but, can't replace the <laughs> sanctum. <laughs> Hey, you know what? You can bargain for it, okay? (laughs) But yeah, other than that, I mean, uh, I do think we didn't really talk any about the the color scheme. That visually, this movie was beautiful, and they they kept with it from beginning to end. Like, Nakia was always wearing green because the the River Tribe, or the Merchant Tribe, I can't remember, I think she's River Tribe. That's what their color was, and uh, Wakabi was in the blues, and it just, it was visually, it was just stunning to look at. Now, I'm not just... I mean, doing, I'd watch Lupita in anything, but otherwise, it was still just gorgeous. Yeah, there's an actual YouTube video where Ryan Coogler actually talks about the casino fight scene, and he literally breaks in about the color scheme as to why those color schemes were like they are. So if you can find it, I would recommend it because yeah. uh, this guy literally went into the whole – he just went step by step, and it was outstanding. Yeah. He, I'll keep an eye out for he, it. He's only, he's only seven years younger than me, and yet this kid is brilliant. <laughs> don't you hate that right. when younger people no, are younger than you? No, actually, I don't. It gives me hope. <laughs> it actually gives me hope, Ryan. Um, <laughs> you're better than me, then. <laughs> All right, Angie, do you have anything more that you want to talk about with Black Panther? I think we've gone over the... the oh God, I could talk about this movie forever. <laughs> I guess just as a parting comment... I think this movie is a perfect example of how you can take a plot line that's fairly tropish and overdone. I mean, hero loses powers, has crisis of faith, hero regains power. I mean, it's it's a fairly standard plot, but they've packed so much into this movie. And I don't think that one viewing is enough to even begin to look at all of the nuance that's in there. You can take something so formulaic and have so much character, so much visually to look at, so many um, philosophical ideas thrown in that, I mean, I and I really, I, when I when you asked me to be on this podcast, I was like, what negative can I say about this? <laughs> I had to think about it, and that's kind of what I came up with, was like, well, the basic plot wasn't that unique, and that's, yeah. but yeah, visually, I agree, it was a stunning film, and i probably going to watch it a couple more times, at least and- in the theater. Angie, you can complain about rivers running up into mountains. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> hey, that's all by brain. Yeah, all okay, it changed the landscape or whatever, yeah. and so you gotta have you know suspicion of disbelief, Ryan. Okay, Fair enough. you can do this, man. You can do this. Vibranium is flubber. <laughs> Magical substance that can do anything. Exactly. Uh-huh. It can change the laws of physics, just like. Other man said with the vibranium shield. Right. Yeah, true. All right, so Lucas, and try to limit yourself because I know that there could be a whole lot. This will be a uh, very short. Okay. First off, the tag scene with uh, Shuri and Winter Soldier when the kids kept calling him White Wolf. There is a character who was the older 
stepbrother to T'Challa called Hunter the White Wolf. And I have a feeling that if he survives, and I really mean that, if Bucky survives in Infinity War, he may very well become the leader of the War Dogs, because that's exactly what Hunter the White Wolf was. And there is a name that I cannot pronounce that they have in Wakandan language when they refer to the War Dogs, but uh, just keep an eye on that. As far as with this movie, this is my favorite Marvel Cinematic Universe movie for a number of reasons, but mostly because it gives so much possibilities, guys, as to what could happen next. And I look forward to not only going back to theaters to watch it, I look forward to actually getting the digital download so I can watch it on my 4D TV. I cannot wait. Yeah. For me, I think that I would be totally remiss if I did not bring up the Stan Lee cameo in a Marvel movie. (laughs) 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 Which, and we have to, I mean, I don't think that we should really shortchange him. He and Jack Kirby, as I mean, everyone knows they're visionaries, but Mm -hmm. they're visionaries that came up with the character of Black Panther that we're talking about now. You know, he was not some tropish joke. They depicted him as a serious king of a superiorly technological civilization than what was current in the world of that time. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. it was very forward-thinking of them. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I mean, I love Stan Lee whenever he shows up in these movies. He's past a point. There was a point in the early 2000s before it was Marvel Studios making movies where I felt like his appearances were getting kind of old. But ever since the MCU has come back, I felt like all his appearances have been wonderful. And yeah, I, I, I loved him showing up at the casino and being like, I'll play with these chips. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so much fun. Yeah, it's funny too because he's doing what he was doing in the comics. Right. Because sometimes he would throw himself in Jack Kirby mm-hmm. in the early Marvel comics and, and cameos. Like, for instance, they were supposed to be at Reed and Sue Richard's wedding mm-hmm. and they couldn't get in. Right. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's the same type of thing. It's that they, Marvel is smart enough to use what was done in the past and say, you know what? Let's throw in, you know, Stan Lee. We can't get Jack, unfortunately, because Jack died in 94. But let's go ahead and throw him in. So, and then, of course, they say he works for the Watchers now. So right. they've, been, they've been building towards this guy. So I've, I've loved it. I've loved yeah. it. I can't imagine what crazy cameo he's going to make in Infinity War. Because you know with it being Infinity War and it being the culmination of 10 years of Marvel storytelling, the, yeah. the, whatever cameo is going to be bigger than normal. Oh my so, god, I can't wait. I can't wait. <laughs> can't wait, Nathan. <laughs> like like he ends up like defeating Thanos somehow. <laughs> he's like the ultimate tribunal. Right, yeah, know. he's the living tribunal or something. Yeah. The living tribunal, yeah. <laughs> but anyway. Alright, well yeah, like we've said, there's still more to unpack with Black Panther and one day I'm sure we'll revisit it because uh I I guess I'll talk about this now. Angie and I are going to do a sort of comic book movie segment. It's not going to start until the summer, but we're going to just pick comic book movies and we're going to read some comics about the character and then talk about the movie that adapts those comics. Or so, yeah, we're, we're that's that's something that I plan on doing moving forward. Uh, we it's sort of the mind, the sort of the idea that I had with Snowpiercer that that I never followed up with. <laughs> so. <laughs> So yeah, that's something to to watch out for with the forty two cast coming up uh, in a few months. Yeah. Link to the Snowpiercer episode <laughs> at the bottom. <laughs> right. <laughs>
Oh, yeah, and uh, before I leave, I'll make a correction. Hunter the White Wolf was not his stepbrother, but his adoptive brother. Okay. His brother pretty much had, like, a, a similar Danny Rand situation. Mm-hmm. But instead of being found by monks, he was found by T'Chaka and adopted by him and T'Challa's birth mother who died in childbirth. So it's not his stepbrother. It's his ado- older adoptive brother. Okay. All right, well, Lucas, why don't you say goodbye and let people know where they can find you online? Yes. Once again, thanks again for having me, Nathan. It was good talking to all of you. Ryan, you were a hoot, brother. <laughs> I appreciate um, it. Thank, thank you. you. And I'm um, Angie. Very insightful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you guys can find me on, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And believe me, you'll be able to know where I am. Because, <laughs> like I said, I keep myself active. But I have my own website. It's called Luke Speculations. And it delves in crossover fiction and taking certain stories and seeing what type of links they have with each other. The ones usually that are popular are the Terminator and True Lies connection, um, as well as the Doctor Who Back to Future, one that I did in the past. But that's pretty much it. Like I said, just go and put Luke Speculation. It is L-U-C apostrophe S speculations at WordPress. Can't miss it. All right. And Angie, why don't you say goodbye and let people know where they can find you? Um, yeah, this is me uh, signing off as awkwardly as ever because I have no <laughs> social media presence. So <laughs> maybe I will get some before we start our comic adaptation venture this summer. But for now, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. All right. Well, thank you for being on the show, Angie. And Ryan, why don't you say goodbye and let people know where they can find you? Yeah, it, that's still not going to happen. You can find me. I will not say goodbye. I will say, you know, until next time, or you were wrong and I was right, or (laughs) something along those lines. You can find me here on probably every second or third podcast. You can find me on my website, which is still not updated, (laughs) but I'm I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that sometime within this presidency that will happen. (laughs) (laughs) A promise you can actually keep. There you go. But that is geekstranger.com. You know, check it out because I am paying like $3 a month to maintain it. So let me get that those four views, uh, you know, a month as well, a dollar per view. I'm bribing you, basically. And you can find me on Twitter at geekstranger. And you can, from there, you can find my Facebook where I will maybe talk about nerd things. I would definitely talk about politics. But if you uh, want to make a nerd opinion of any sort, I can tell you why you're wrong. Just ask Nathan. <laughs> what? that's very true it's late it's very true all right but uh ryan angie and lucas thank you so much for joining me today you're welcome thank you thank you and that's it for the black panther podcast i was able to talk to jennifer who had to bow out towards the end of our podcast if you noticed i spliced in some comments from her during some of the final questions Uh, which is why maybe some of them didn't sound like they were quite the same tonal quality as the rest of the show. But uh, I also was able to ask her to give her sign out, so here it is. Well, it was wonderful uh, being with all of you guys this evening. I had a lot of fun. My next thing that I'm going to be doing is Hulanta, the first weekend in May, which is going to be, as it sounds like, in Atlanta. And I got, uh, I'm going to do some interviews there and some panels and whatnot. And I'm really looking forward to that. I'm on Facebook. I'm on a lot of the, the same groups in the ESO network. 
as y'all are. And technically, I'm on Twitter at that Jen Hearts, but I hardly ever check it. So <laughs> Facebook's the better place to find me. And yeah, now that you've heard the show, let us know what you think about it. We really love having feedback, and we like to know what you think. What do you think of the show that I've proposed uh, with Angie and myself? We are gearing up for having that debut this summer, rather than the summer that we recorded that episode, which, <laughs> thankfully, it didn't air before now, because then you would all be in anticipation of something I hadn't provided. Um, but uh, yeah, so let me know what you think about that. Let me know what you think about this episode. Let me know what you think about guests you know, upcoming topics, all that kind of stuff. And you can do that by emailing us at everything at 42cast.com. You can go to the website at 42cast.com and leaving a comment. You can visit the Facebook page at facebook.com slash 42cast. You can tweet to us at at 42cast. And you can also leave reviews at Stitcher Radio or iTunes. Don't forget to check out the ESO Patreon because that's a way of helping the entire ESO network of which the 42cast is a part. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash ESO network. If you become a patron, there are exclusive episodes that open up to you. And it's just a way of helping us all, you know, fund staying on the web. On the air, I don't think works. So on the web. (laughs) So yeah, that's a wrap for this episode. In news of what's going on around here, I think I've decided ultimately to give C2E2 a pass. Finances are pretty tight here, so even though they have announced Stephen Amell as a guest, and I would really like to meet him, and I'm not sure how much of the convention circuit he's going to be doing since Arrow is ending this year, you know, if he'll be out of the convention circuit again for a while. Who knows if Marvel will snatch him up and do some Marvel TV shows or movies with him and cast him as something, or if he'll get involved in some other geeky thing that would, you know, provide convention appearances, but until that happens... We'll see, you know, maybe I'll get to meet him somewhere down the line. So that's the end of this episode of the 42 cast. Join us back next week when J.R.R. Tolkien will not be joining us. And until then, this is Nathan signing off. You have been listening to the 42 cast copyright 2019. Got a question for the ultimate answer? Contact us at everything at 42 cast.com. Theme music is Sharper Swords by Brandon Ellis. Check out more of his work at www.cityfires.com. The 42 Cast is a proud member of the ESO Network. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.